friends. Welcome to Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. That song always slaps. One of my favorite YouTube slaps, comments baby. about this show. It's so good. Yeah. It's so good. Um, so also very good to be back. We took last weekend off, and um, I'm happy that we're doing the show today because there's so much to get to. We put Kale through quite a bit this morning with all of our <laughs> element requests, video requests, um, but it's going to be a fantastic show with Natalie Shore joining us for our interview portion of the program. Um, Nando's got a fantastic decode segment about Afghanistan, and I'm going to talk about, um, you know, why I'm such a terrible sexist person for yes. wanting to criticize Janet Yellen. <laughs> for I'm gonna I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna reasons. defend I'm gonna defend all women uh, on behalf of men. Because I'm a, we're about to witness a vicious, sexist attack from Anna Kasparian, my co-host. Which Ex- you know, yep. we agree on a lot, Anna, but we disagree on some things. And I personally think that it's sexist to attack women for literally anything. I think women can do no wrong. No, it's impossible for a woman no to do wrong. no wrong. No wrong. So yeah, Betsy um, DeVos, totally fine. Um, you know, uh, Ivanka Trump, yeah. totally fine. I mean, Sarah Palin, as long as they're women. Sarah Palin, she's fantastic. Sarah Palin's great. She's great. She would have been a great vice president. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I can't wait for that segment. Um, But we uh, are going to open the show today by talking a little bit about, um, well, the Senate runoff race that's going to take place in Georgia this week. Um, But more importantly, how those candidates have handled the demands for relief checks toward Americans during this moment of crisis. Um, So look, David Sirota and all the fantastic writers over at the Daily Poster have done such a good job in um, really covering in a detailed way how members of Congress have been handling the relief package. And I'm actually pretty shocked at how little attention there's been among progressives, um, you know, in terms of holding Leffler and Purdue accountable for uh, what they've been up to. So let's talk about that a little bit. Earlier this week, uh, it was reported that Bernie Sanders and the tactic he was attempting to implement in the Senate didn't work because it was blocked by 41 Democrats in the Senate. Now, this has everything to do with direct $2,000 relief checks to Americans. These are not stimulus checks. These are checks that Americans need to literally survive right now. It's been months and months and months uh, since Congress has successfully passed legislation that would offer relief during the pandemic. And uh, the latest version of uh, pandemic relief came in the form of $600 uh, uh, direct checks to Americans. And Donald Trump came out and said, no, I'm going to veto this. I'm going to vote against it I'm, or not vote against it. I'm gonna, not going to sign it unless you guys provide more direct relief to Americans. I want $2,000 checks. Well, that opened up a fantastic opportunity for Democrats like Bernie Sanders, who uh, proposed blocking uh, unanimous consent for a veto proof vote on Uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, something that Donald Trump did, in fact, veto. And his argument was, we're not going to vote on that. I am not going to provide unanimous consent unless we get a floor vote on uh, up or down vote um, on a standalone, uh, you know, bill that offers two thousand dollar direct checks to Americans. Well, Mitch McConnell uh, stood up and said, 
All right. Well, uh, who's with me on wanting to vote on NDAA uh, and, you know, just bypassing what what Bernie Sanders is trying to do here? 41 Democrats joined. But during that whole debate, what was really interesting, Nando, was that all of a sudden David Perdue and Kelly Leffler, two senators from Georgia who are facing reelection, um, had to find a way to go along with what Trump is saying, even though they were not actually in favor in any way of providing direct relief checks to Americans. All of a sudden, you have people like Kelly Leffler going on Fox News, trying to thread the needle. Here's what that sounded like. And then I'll give you the details on what actually happened. So will you support that bill, that encouragement from the president once it gets to the Senate? Well, well, look, the president has fought for our country from day one. He continues to fight for every single American. I've stood by the president 100% of the time. I'm proud to do that. And I've said, absolutely, we need to get relief to Americans now. And I will support that. But look, here's the issue. Democrats have blocked relief time and again. That's why we're in this situation as a country. We've tried to pass that relief since this summer. Nancy Pelosi, Bernie Sanders, they've admitted that they held it up because they were playing politics with the lives of Georgians and all Americans around this election. And we have to hold Democrats accountable on January 5th. Now, obviously, she's lying about Democrats allegedly blocking the bill. Uh, The uh, legislation had been blocked by Mitch McConnell over and over again. Uh, As we know, the HEROES Act passed in the House, um, you know, months and months ago. But Mitch McConnell uh, refused to uh, bring it to a floor vote. Now, with that said, uh, what happened with Leffler and McConnell? Like in there, she claimed that she is supportive of what Trump is calling for. Um, And as Sirota and Perez write in Jacobin um, and the Daily Poster, Senator Mitch McConnell may may want to own the libs and economically punish his own destitute state by blocking the $2,000 checks. But an even bigger priority for him is holding on to his job as majority leader. But he can only do that if the Georgia incumbents win re-election. And they continue to write this, Nando. That means if Leffler and Purdue publicly demanded passage of the $2,000 checks legislation, and if they explicitly aimed their criticism at McConnell for holding things up, it would almost certainly happen. But as we know, guys, it didn't work out that way. Kelly, Leffler, and David Purdue weren't even present for uh, when that vote happened on, uh, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders' efforts to block the NDAA until they got a vote on um, the direct checks to Americans. It's just, this is, this is how it played out. And I would like to see a little more emphasis on how the Republican Party is working against the American people. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about forcing the vote, forcing the vote when it comes to Medicare for all, with all of the ire directed toward progressive Democrats who are on our side. Let's also focus a little bit on what Republican lawmakers are doing to block actual relief to the American people. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 been um, a kind of nail-biting few days over this uh, $2,000 check uh, issue because... I mean, weirdly, and, and weirdly, Trump opened up that political terrain. I mean, obviously, kind of like accidentally, he he has no idea like how any of this stuff works. Um, but there was a brief opening um, because of because I mean, you know, once the Senate had agreed to a bill um, for six hundred dollar checks plus the three hundred dollar uh, unemployment insurance expansion, um, that was that. That seemed like that was that, I and mean, that was it. That was all that was going to happen um, for at least the next five or six months. And um, but Trump opened up that terrain and then there was this kind of like very, you know, you had to like learn all these like very arcane inside the Senate rules about how our very 
insane parliament works. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, uh, we got nothing or, or we're going to get nothing, at least for now. Um, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it, it'll play out in the Georgia election. I mean, Mitch McConnell was in a kind of tight spot, like Trump put him in a tight, tight spot by opening that terrain. I mean, he the only reason why he agreed to the $600 checks in the first place is because he saw that um, Leffler and Purdue's chances to win in Georgia were probably tied to them passing some sort of relief um, mm-hmm. in, in the pandemic. And uh, so he allowed like this, the bare, 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 bare minimum. But um, but Trump like kind of blew that up and then he used every trick at his disposal um, to delay, like not delay is not the right word, but like to, to mask the reality of what's going on, which is that, that they were never, they, they didn't want even the $600 in the first place. And they certainly didn't want to expand that to $2,000. Um, I mean, I guess that the only, you know, obviously the Democrats could have played probably harder. I mean, if they, if they would have followed Definitely. Bernie Sanders to the, to the, to the bitter end, um, over this defense authorization bill. Um, it's possible that some, that it might've played out differently. Maybe they could have extended it, um, to a few more days to really ramp up the heat on the Georgia election. Um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how that plays out. I mean, I, 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 I think the politics of this are so muddled at this point, um, that it's, it's hard to see how that plays out. But I, I mean, I certainly would have liked them to go to the bitter end. Um, but, yeah, can I can I jump in on that real yeah, quick, Nando? Because sure. I totally I totally agree with you. And if you're to place uh, the majority of the blame on any group of people, it would be the 41 Democratic senators who voted along with Mitch McConnell um, against the tactic that Bernie Sanders was trying to implement. Right. And we're talking about uh, Democratic leadership. Uh, you know, we have Chuck Schumer who voted along with Mitch McConnell on this effort. Uh, you have Kamala Harris, who uh, very recently bragged about how she's the one who proposed uh, the, the main author of the legislation that would provide the direct $2,000 relief checks to Americans, she voted along with Mitch McConnell. Because when push comes to shove, ensuring that your uh, private military contractor buddies and donors uh, get the money that they desperately need, which of course mm-hmm. they don't actually desperately need, that that supersedes the needs of the American people. And so that also goes to one other point I want to just quickly make. All right, we just we just got 41 Democratic senators on the record saying, no, we're, we're going to actually uh, engage in this effort to block the only leverage we have, the only chance we have at passing something incredibly popular, something that Democrats and Republicans across the board want, which is, um, you know, these robust $2,000 direct checks to Americans. And so we have their names. We have them on the record. Now what? Yeah. Now what? Where's the groundswell? You know why they were able to do that? You know why they were able to put their names on that effort? Because they don't fear us. They don't fear the left. They don't fear progressives. They don't fear anyone, to be honest with you. They don't fear anyone other than their own donors. So this shouldn't come as any surprise to anybody. No. Yeah. I mean, it it really shouldn't. And, 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 you know, it's, it's, I mean, again, it'll be interesting. I, I, I have no idea what the, what the hell is going to happen in three days in, in Georgia, because, I can't trust polling anymore, especially at the state level, given what happened uh, just a few months ago in the general election where the state polls were just like absolutely way off. Um, but I mean, it, it, it does seem that like it, it, this, the race has kind of coalesced around 
this issue. So it is kind of a test case to to see whether voters will punish um, the, you know, the incumbent Republican senators who, I mean, let's be clear, like if the Democrats can't win these two races against like these two cartoon villains in the middle of this pandemic, you know what I mean? Like they're the most cartoonishly villainous people um, that you can imagine. I mean, they profited off <laughs> the misinformation that they were peddling in, in, in the pandemic. I mean, it's it's really, really disgusting. Kelly Loeffler was never even elected um, to, to the Senate. I mean, it's, it's, it should be, kind of a slam dunk it, when you think about it. But, um, but I have no idea what's going to happen. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it would have been, it would have been nice to see the Democrats go to the bitter end. I mean, I, I didn't really think that that was going to happen. I mean, I was kind of surprised that they were making noises about it at, at some point, but, but when, when push came to shove, they, they really just kind of laid down and, uh, and, you know, voted to, to fund the military because that's, that's not good. Yeah. You can't hold that up for one, one second. <laughs> 70, uh, $741 billion uh, for the National Defense Authorization Act. They had no problem passing that. 60 years, 60 consecutive years, uh, Congress has passed legislation funding the military. But when it comes to providing much needed relief to ordinary Americans who are suffering right now through no fault of their own, they just can't do it. They can't do it. But more importantly, they're willing to give you the middle finger publicly, transparently, knowing that we're not organized enough to respond effectively, knowing that we have not accumulated enough power, that we're not strategic enough to make sure that they pay the consequences for that vote. And and that is key here. That's not me being defeatist. That's acknowledging and identifying the real flaws here and realizing that we need to do something to fix it, that we need to do uh, the hard work, the honestly, the work that's not glamorous at all, that's not fun at all. Some of the work that's already taking place behind the scenes among organizers who don't get any credit for it, who don't get any money for it, who don't get any glory or recognition for it. Um, that is something that we need to uplift and talk about um, more, I think, on this show and other progressive programs. But organizing is an important aspect of, of winning and um, accumulating power. And anyone who denies that and instead argues that, no, this is really personality-based, that's what we need to focus on. And we need some, you know, podcasters to, uh, you know, put out calls of action and that'll get things done. No, it won't because we're experiencing how much that fails at this very moment. Yeah. Anyway. So that takes me to my decode segment, uh, because it's not about forcing the vote, but it is about, um, how it's important to, uh, differentiate between identity politics that I think do matter. Right. And, identity politics that gets used by uh, corporate Democrats for cynical reasons. So let's get to it. In August of 2018, Senator Elizabeth Warren gave a pretty lengthy speech announcing her proposal to root out corruption in government. Uh, She felt that uh, money in politics had its grips in Washington, and as a result, were not able to pass the type of legislation that ordinary Americans absolutely deserve. Here's what she had to say specifically about how paid speeches impact corruption and what gets done in Washington. Take a look. Restore faith that ordinary people can get a fair shake in our courts. For starters, strengthen the code of conduct for all federal judges. No stock trading, no payments from corporations for attending events, no honoraria for giving speeches, no lavish getaways and fancy hunting trips funded by billionaires. 
and I mean all federal judges, including Supreme Court justices. So what she's talking about there is incredibly important, and it's an issue that impacts pretty much anyone in a position of power in our government. In that case, she's talking about federal judges, Supreme Court justices, uh, but this is certainly something that has uh, impacted members of Congress. We have this revolving door of politics, and the whole idea is that as soon as these lawmakers are um, out of public office, they'll then turn to, uh, you know, lobbying firms, uh, corporations, and places where uh, they usually make incredible amounts of money simply due to their influence and their ties to Washington. This corruption is real. It's something that Elizabeth Warren was actually absolutely right about. Now, unfortunately, since that speech was given by Warren, not much has changed. And today we find ourselves uh, dealing with very similar situations. In fact, recently Politico wrote about how uh, Biden's pick for Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen um, has been paid quite a bit of money in the last two years uh, by Wall Street, uh, you know, firms who, you know, want to pay her a ton of money to give speeches. So I want to read you a few excerpts from what Politico has written, and then it's important to focus on the response by blue checkmark resistance types on Twitter, because it's a perfect example of how identity politics gets used cynically to hinder any real critique of flaws in our political system. So Politico writes that in the past two years, President-elect Joe Biden's pick to be Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has raked in more than $7.2 million in speaking fees from Wall Street and large corporations, including Citi, Goldman Sachs, Google, City National Bank, UBS, Citadel LLC, Barclays, Credit Suisse, Salesforce, and more. This is pretty big Wall Street firms. There's no question. Um, in fact, Yellen brought in nearly $1 million, giving nine speeches to City alone. Remember, this is just in the last two years, guys. This is not throughout her entire career. She earned more than $800,000 speaking to Citadel, a hedge fund founded by the Republican mega donor Ken Griffin. She also spoke to the law and lobbying firm, um, law and lobbying firm Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. <laughs> Along with her disclosures, by the way, Yellen pledged to go to Treasury's ethics lawyers to seek written authorization to participate personally and uh, substantially in any particular matter that involves a firm she received compensation from in the prior year. But keep in mind that she very recently gave um, a speech to Citi. Uh, she received speaking fees when she gave that speech in October of 2020, again, very recently. And so um, if she followed through with that ethics uh, proposal, essentially she would only consult with the department's ethics lawyers until October of 2021. Now, this is a big problem. Uh, for reasons that I will get even more detailed about in just a minute. Um, but apparently some don't feel that this is a problem. The same blue check marks on Twitter who are very much concerned about Donald Trump's conflicts of interest, uh, violations of the emoluments clause, how the Kushners were still very much in business uh, with real estate dealings while Kushner was serving as a top advisor to the president. All of those people who are concerned about all of those things are now suddenly saying, how dare you attack Janet Yellen? This is misogynistic, as if 
The real critique here doesn't have any substance. And I think that's ridiculous. Let me give you some examples, starting with Matt McDermott, who's the VP of a political consulting firm. Um, He says he's appalled uh, by what he perceives as pure sexism, repeatedly chastising women and only women for harnessing their intellect and expertise to earn speaking fees is absolutely a misogynistic attack. It's also a remarkably hypocritical attack coming from journalists who themselves regularly earn speaking fees. Now, I agree with him about journalists earning speaking fees. It definitely matters where the speaking fees are coming from. Um, And so I think that it's a nuanced situation. In this case, we're talking about a possible treasury secretary getting paid millions of dollars, $7.2 million over the last two years. There's a clear conflict of interest there. That is a problem. Um, And by the way, it's also not remotely true that Politico only focused on Janet Yellen. In fact, in that same article, there was some focus on a male pick by uh, the Biden team, Anthony Blinken. Anthony Blinken, uh, Biden's nominee to be Secretary of State, disclosed the clients he advised through West Exec Advisors, the consulting firm he co-founded with other Obama administration alumni. Those clients included uh, the investment giant Blackstone, Bank of America, Facebook, Uber, McKinsey and Company, the Japanese conglomerate SoftBank, uh, the pharmaceutical company Gilead, the investment bank Lazard, Boeing, AT&T. I mean, this, the list goes on and on. The Royal Bank of Canada, LinkedIn, and the uh, and Sotheby's auction house. So the list goes on and on. More importantly, uh, to all the critics, there was emphasis on a male person who's tied to the Biden team as well. Uh, But that was left out of the criticism that McDermott put out there. Now, other critics of Politico's reporting uh, tried to draw false equivalencies between uh, those who went after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for being a bartender and, you know, people who are now criticizing Janet Yellen for the money that she made uh, speaking to uh, Wall Street executives. Here's an example. The people who belittle AOC for being a former waitress are the same faulting Janet Yellen for earning $7.2 million. So how much exactly should women make? Except um, it's not the same people. Uh, There are people on the left, uh, well-intentioned people who have genuine and legitimate concerns about what's happening right now with money in politics. Now, money in politics isn't the end-all be-all regarding our political system and how we need to fix it, but it is an influencing factor that we need to address. And that argument was absolutely ridiculous because, as we know, those who have minimized AOC's accomplishments are usually people like Ben Shapiro who like to point out the fact that she used to be a a bartender. But being a bartender isn't a conflict of interest if you want to be a public servant. Getting paid millions of dollars by Wall Street uh, when you're possibly about to be a Treasury Secretary is a giant conflict of interest. One more example. So AOC is faulted for being a waitress that doesn't make enough money, and now Janet Yellen is being faulted for being a baller that makes too much money. I'm starting to think the real problem is the rampant and pervasive sexism that is still allowed to invade too many opinions. So I do want to address that because, again, this isn't about how much money Janet Yellen has made. If Janet Yellen had made 
I don't know, a million dollars the way Bernie Sanders did by writing a book after running uh, for president in 2016, that was well-earned money. That's not a conflict of interest. That has nothing to do with how he performs his job. It wouldn't have anything to do with how Janet Yellen would prefer, uh, perform her job. But that's not the case here. This isn't about the amount of money she's made. It's about how she's made it. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, one other person, and that's, of course, Stephanie Rule. Stephanie Rule was outraged about this reporting from Politico, where she wrote, seriously, are you kidding me? Do better, Politico. Janet Yellen was paid market value. But listen, to be fair to um, Stephanie Rule, she's consistent. I mean, she seems to love conflicts of interest. Uh, she's a walking you know, poster child for conflicts of interest as someone who worked um, as a hedge fund salesperson and then immediately pivoted to anchoring the news on MSNBC. And by the way, uh, just recently she faced some backlash for appearing in a chase ad. This one. Hey, this is Stephanie Rule, and I'm looking forward to my conversation with Chase, where we talk about life's unpredictable moments and how important it is to save and plan for them. I hope you're going to join us. Jay Williams and I are going to dig into all the crazy things we're dealing with in our lives right now and how we can best prepare for them. Uh, I'm excited to be part of Chase Chat's webcast. I hope you'll join us. <laughs> so apparently there was enough backlash toward that ad that um, finally Chase decided to uh, distance themselves uh, from Stephanie Rule. Chase banked to stop using MSNBC's rule in uh, promotional ads after conflict of interest concerns. So it looks like conflicts of interest really do serve as a concern for Americans who want fair reporting, who want accurate representation in Congress, who just want to be represented appropriately without corrupting factors like, you know, paid speeches, uh, promotional partnerships, and things like that. So there seems to be an acknowledgement that a conflict of interest is a problem here. Uh, but for some reason, using that argument in the context of Janet Yellen getting paid $7.2 million over the last two years for giving Wall Street speeches is unacceptable because it's allegedly misogynistic. I'm here to tell you that it is not. It is not misogynistic because what we're talking about here is the substance of what influences politicians and people who serve in government. We're not talking about whether or not Janet Yellen is fit for the job because she's a woman. We're talking about whether or not she's fit for the job based on influencing factors behind the scenes, based on conflicts of interest, based on corruption. And to give you other examples of how this has been accepted in the past as an issue in other contexts. Let's talk about how uh, Hillary Clinton was criticized for her Wall Street speeches when she was running in the Democratic primary in 2016. Look, it was clear that she had taken giant sums of money for her Wall Street speeches. Uh, she refused to release the transcripts of those speeches, you know, to all the people who think, no, this is just about a woman getting paid for her expertise. Okay, great, we'd love to read your expertise. Can you release the transcripts? She refused to do so. And then, of course, WikiLeaks uh, got a hold of Podesta's emails and put out more details about what was in those Wall Street speeches. Let's watch. 
One of the ironies of this story is that we know about these emails at all because the campaign itself did self-opposition research to find what in her Goldman Sachs speeches could prove damaging should they leak. Among the stuff that's gotten the most attention is Clinton saying that Dodd-Frank, Obama's signature initiative to reign in Wall Street, was, quote, passed for political reasons. You can see her aides in the emails internally debating how to make sure that her apparent tone deafness around Wall Street didn't seep out into the public. One example that really drives this home is that right after the campaign launched, Bill Clinton was planning on giving a speech at Morgan Stanley. And Clinton's aides freaked out about this. They said this is something we shouldn't do. And Hillary herself appeared to be okay with it. Now, again, if you are a Clinton fan, you probably don't think that's a big deal. You probably think that Clinton and her husband can march into Wall Street, say what they need to say, collect the money, and not change their viewpoints at all. I have never, ever been influenced in a view or a vote by anyone who has given me any kind of funding. But it does speak to, I think, something that we've long suspected, which is that Hillary herself doesn't really see the political ramifications for appearing close to Wall Street or doesn't care. Now, after Wa- after WikiLeaks released even more emails, uh, we learned more details into uh, what Hillary Clinton was telling these Wall Street executives during these uh, lucrative speeches, and uh, doesn't look so good. It was definitely a liability for her campaign. Watch. But as a highly paid speaker, Clinton appears to have told the bankers, the people that know the industry better than anybody are the people who work in the industry. <laughs> In the emails released by WikiLeaks, not authenticated by Clinton or NBC News, she also said new banking regulations after the 2008 crisis were passed for political reasons. And the jury is still out on the 2010 Dodd-Frank Wall Street reform law. And a stolen email WikiLeaks says was to campaign chairman John Podesta and others last October reveals... Clinton decided to oppose the TPP trade deal she once supported, even before seeing the final version, contrary to her later claim. An advisor writing, if she weighs in now without viewing the document, some in labor might wonder why she didn't just say she opposed earlier. So clearly, uh, Wall Street wasn't hiring her for her expertise, especially when in her speeches she was telling them, you guys are better suited to understand these issues than people like me. So what was that money paid for? Clearly, it was meant to influence Hillary Clinton, to let her know who her real bosses are. And again, that was uh, pretty widely accept, uh, accepted as a problem, as a liability for her campaign, especially at a time when so many Americans uh, couldn't recover from the 2008 economic collapse. And the situation for many Americans has actually gotten much worse, especially because of this pandemic. So I think it's pretty important for the American people to understand the type of corruption at play at this very moment, especially when it comes to people in positions of power who get to decide what kind of relief we get, what kind of austerity gets passed in the future, what kind of tax cuts get promoted for the wealthy. These are issues that matter to us. We should know about how much she's getting paid 
by Wall Street firms. But let me tell you uh, how this is a problem in other contexts in case people think that this is a little too political. Oh, maybe we need to focus on, I don't know, the healthcare industry. We know that there's quite a bit of corruption in that regard as well. And, um, you know, moving away from politicians and looking at the medical field, corruption has been a huge problem for decades and paid speeches are a huge part of it. This next video is a little older. It's 12 years old, but it's important to understand just how paid speeches have influenced the medical field. Take a look. The Downings blame Candace's suicide on the antidepressant drug Zoloft. They wondered why the doctor gave such a powerful drug when Candace's only complaint was anxiety in school. Then recently, in their lawsuit against the doctor, they think they found an answer. And I said, wait a second, what? Wait a second, because Candace's doctor, Matemi Selassie, had been paid around $12,000 making speeches touting Zoloft, with some of the payments coming from Pfizer, the drug's manufacturer. The Downings believe the money influenced the prescription. So luckily, there has been some progress on this front, um, something that, you know, People aren't talking about much, but Matt Brunig uh, tweeted about it, and I looked into it more. Um, Under the Trump administration, believe it or not, the Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General found that pharma-funded speaking engagements featuring doctors are typically illegal kickback programs. So even the Inspector General in the Department of Health and Human Services acknowledges that these paid speeches are um, a corrupting factor in how uh, doctors prescribe certain drugs, which is incredibly important to acknowledge, especially as the opioid epidemic continues to tear across this country. The Office of Inspector General expressed significant concerns about companies' use of paid physician speakers based on the OIG's investigation and enforcement actions and declared that paid speaker programs are often used to induce referrals or use the company's products. This is according to what was recently written um, in the National Law Review. This is coming from, again, the inspector general uh, within the Department of Health and Human Services. Pharmaceutical and device companies have settled numerous false claims acts, um, um, numerous false claim act cases involving speaker programs over the years for substantial uh, sums, notably including a June 2020 $642 million settlement with the United States centered on allegations regarding regarding the company's speaker programs. So clearly, guys, this is a problem. It's been acknowledged as a problem, both in politics, in the healthcare industry. Again, it is a corrupting factor in how decisions are made. This has nothing to do with misogyny. This has absolutely nothing to do with sexism. This has everything to do with the substance of this matter. And anyone who tries to make this an identity politics issue is doing so in a cynical way. They're trying to deflect. They're trying to pretend as though this is not a problem when it clearly is. And I'm sick of people using gender, using race, using whatever identity they choose to use for any particular reason uh, in order to uh, deflect from a very real problem that we're experiencing in this country. Uh, The National Law Review, by the way, continued to write that in the special fraud alert, the OIG noted drug and device companies paid nearly $2 billion to healthcare professionals for speaking-related services in the last three years. Now, someone who really seemed to understand how corruption works 
how these paid speeches have a negative influence on uh, people in positions of power, um, of course, is Senator Elizabeth Warren. We heard from her earlier in this segment. Uh, She wanted to do something about this. And she even criticized Barack Obama back in 2017 for giving a $400,000 speech uh, that was paid by a Wall Street firm at a healthcare conference. Here's what she had to say about that at the time. Senator Warren, what do you think about President Obama accepting $400,000 from Wall Street? Well, I was uh, troubled by that. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book is the influence of money. I, I describe it as a, you know, a snake that slithers through Washington. Snake that slithers through Washington. So um, what does Warren think about the recent controversy regarding Janet Yellen and how much she's made over the last two years by giving these speeches? Well, Politico concluded its report by saying a spokesperson for Senator Elizabeth Warren, who has been critical of the revolving door between government officials and corporations, did not immediately respond (laughs) to a request for comment. The progressive Massachusetts senator previously called Yellen an outstanding choice. (laughs) I just want to reiterate, this has nothing to do with sexism. This has everything to do with what influences people in positions of power. This is a conflict of interest. It's a real problem. Has nothing to do with any identity. Has everything to do with ensuring that we keep our lawmakers and uh, members of Biden's cabinet as honest as we possibly can. Now, that's an incredibly difficult thing to do, as we've learned throughout the years. But it doesn't matter. What matters is that people are educated about what's going on behind the scenes. It's important for people to understand what kind of flaws we have in our system. That way we can identify those flaws and actually work to change them. And the people who are trying to stop us from doing that are people who cynically use identity politics to deflect from the very real problems that we're experiencing in government today. Interesting choice for Senator Warren to call money and politics like a snake that slithers through the system. You know, I... I and I mean, I, I was I was led to believe just a few months ago that that using that kind of terminology was was problematic uh, by Elizabeth Warren herself. Um, you know, this 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 issue is it's it's remarkable to me and it shows how far to the right American politics has become like we, we talk a lot about polarization and the sort of conventional wisdom line on polarization is that the parties are kind of moving away from each other. And that's not true. Both parties are moving to the right. They're just kind of sorting themselves out into um, very distinct camps because it used to be with the issue of things like money and politics, it used to be that the standard liberal line was that you did not need a piece of paper that showed a literal quid pro quo in which someone was like, I believe in taking down the banks. Here's a million dollars. I believe that the banks are, you know what I mean? Like what Hillary Clinton is saying there, that sort of incredibly narrow definition of like, I've never changed one of my views uh, in exchange for money. That's like, think about how narrow that is. And it, it, and it, and it, it, it just used to be that the line of the, the liberal line was like, even the appearance of the corruption was enough mm-hmm. because it isn't the it, it's never the case that it's like they take some like firebrand uh reformer and then pay him off and then they they kind of turn into a complete shill that's not really how it works i mean obviously there's examples of that but the the sort of more structural critique is that it kind of flows both ways 
And and it's much softer than that. It's much kind of um, it happens on a, on, a, on a sort of deeper level. It's like the famous uh, Chomsky interview where he's talking to like some BBC guy um, or I don't know if he's from the BBC, so some British uh, journalist. And he's like, he's like, but I've never taken orders from someone to change my views. And Chomsky's like, yeah, because if you but if you didn't, if you believed a certain different other thing, you wouldn't be sitting in that chair. If you believed what I believe, totally. you wouldn't be sitting in that chair. And that the, the, the system that you're talking about is the one that enforces that kind of thing. Right, that that enforces an ideological uh, discipline um, from from these people. I mean, that's like, you know, Hillary Clinton is being. It's not. She's not being paid off to change her views on anything. She's being rewarded for her views. Is that if that makes sense? Yep. And that sends yeah. a message to everyone else that if you have these views, you too will be rewarded. Um, so that that's how that's how the corrupting uh, influence works. It's not like. It's not like here's a piece of paper, change everything you believe in to adhere to these principles. It's, it's, it doesn't work like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. You're, ab- you're absolutely right about that. And also, I mean, so yes, the money gets paid uh, to like-minded individuals. But then on the back end, you also have to acknowledge that uh, someone like Hillary Clinton, most people, people in general are not going to want to bite the hand that feeds after the fact, especially knowing that that is, you know, a lucrative source (laughs) of income for you um, and is likely to be so uh, when you're no longer serving in government, right? Because that revolving door is an issue. Like the revolving door, when you look at uh, Crowley, the person that, um, you know, AOC beat uh, in in New York, what did he do immediately after... um, losing to AOC. He went and started working for a lobbying firm where he's paid handsomely, right? Because they they want to do something. They want to earn money after the fact. Oh, yeah. And so a lot of them end up being lobbyists. A lot of them end up uh, serving on boards of giant banks, all sorts of things that are lucrative and work against us. But that kind of thinking, again, corrupts their decision-making when they're supposed to be serving us. And so, yeah, it, it is a huge problem. And to just simply brush this off as, oh, it's a misogynistic attack. Come on, please. You guys do better. You guys need to do better. Yeah. And, and I, I, hate, I hate saying that they're intentionally doing it um, to kind of clear uh, Yellen's name here. But some of them are. I, I think it's definitely cynical. Um, I think there are some people who want to be good people. And so once they see that uh, people are arguing that it's misogynistic, um, they'll get scared and say, yeah, yeah, it's definitely misogynistic. But no, people have been criticizing both men and women who engage in this kind of behavior. It, this is not a female situation. This is not a misogyny, um, you know, story about misogyny. It has everything to do with, again, corruption, conflicts of interest, and what what we need to do to acknowledge it and, and fight it. Um, anyway. That was a long segment. Sorry. I just had a lot to say about it because I can't stand, uh, and I've experienced it firsthand, uh, when it comes to, let's say, uh, progressive candidates who want to challenge, um, incumbent corporate Democrats. First thing you see, uh, by establishment press and corporate press is ridiculous, uh, defamatory attacks alleging that the progressive is sexist or mm-hmm. is racist or is mean to his or her workers, like whatever they can think of, um, to smear that person. But at the end of the day, this isn't about identity politics. This is about, again, doing something to root out the flaws that we're seeing in our system. 
And I'll stop talking now. No, 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 no. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Take go it off. Away. Go off, queen. That, that's, what <laughs> go I tell, off queen. that's what I tell Janet Yellen to defend her uh, when she's uh, speaking to Wall Street. Um, well, anyway, so guys, I don't know if you noticed, but it's a new year. We're officially in a new year. We finally left that dumpster fire known as 2020, and it's a brand spanking new 2021, which means that it has now been 20 years since the United States invaded Afghanistan as retaliation for 9-11. Osama bin Laden, the mastermind of 9-11, is long gone. His body dumped into the sea way back in 2011, 10 years ago now. I remember it like it was just yesterday. Yet the U.S. troop presence in Afghanistan remains, and the Taliban is as powerful today as at any point in the last 20 years of war. Now, we've all kind of forgotten about Afghanistan for somewhat understandable reasons. At this point, the arguments are all the same, and it's been sort of a low hum in the background of the discourse for many, many years now. But a couple of weeks ago, The Intercept dropped an absolutely terrifying expose that should have sent shockwaves around the world. A shocking expose out today in The Intercept reveals CIA-backed death squads in Afghanistan have killed children as young as eight years old in a series of night raids, many targeting madrasas, Islamic religious schools. In December 2018, one of the death squads attacked a madrasa in Wardak province, killing 12 boys, the youngest nine years old. The killers are believed to be from a CIA-trained and funded paramilitary unit known as Zero One. The United States played key roles in many of the raids, from picking targets to ferrying Afghan forces to the sites to providing lethal air power during the raids. That's right. The CIA is training death squads who are purposefully murdering children in Afghanistan with full U.S. support. And the timing of this is kind of interesting because on December 17th, the day before The Intercept published their bombshell report, The New York Times published a hilarious op-ed by a former military intelligence officer named Elliot Ackerman with a headline that read, The Afghan war is over. Did anyone notice? The troops are staying, but we can declare an end to our forever war. The key phrase there, of course, is the troops are staying. Well, Andrew Quilty's report in The Intercept shows just what the role of the American presence in Afghanistan really is. I actually spoke to Andrew a couple of days ago. My name is Andrew Quilty. I'm an Australian photojournalist based in Kabul, Afghanistan, and I recently published a story about the CIA's Afghan death squads for The Intercept. And his story centers on a series of religious schools known as madrasas that were being targeted by these CIA-backed death squads. Now, nominally, they were targeted because they're accused of being hotbeds for Taliban recruitment. But in actuality, most of these students were children under the age of 16. The raids like the like what came before and um, what resulted um, followed a similar pattern. They would um, the, the forces would... Um, usually use an explosive charge to enter a building, often a madrasa. They would um, enter the building and um, and they would often execute, massacre a, uh, a proportion of, if not all of the students inside at the time. Now, Andrew was able to document 10 such raids with at least 51 civilian victims 
Reading this is from his piece in the Intercept. In most cases, men and boys as young as eight, few of whom appear to have had any formal relationship with the Taliban, were were summarily executed. Some died alone, others alongside friends and family. Several raids were accompanied by airstrikes or, in at least one instance, the detonation of hand-laid explosives targeting structures known to be occupied by civilians. This is the CIA training these groups and then working with them outside of the chain of command of both the U.S. military and the Afghan military. They're completely independent and they are specifically targeting children in schools. Andrew tells the harrowing story of one man who lost his two sons. Mahmoud was the father of two boys who were killed in a raid in the district of Nurk, uh, again in a madrasa. They were eight and nine years old, respectively, and they were among 12 students of the madrasa uh, who were killed in uh, one night in December 2018. The family lived about an hour, an hour's walk from the madrasa, and, and Mahmoud's two boys um, would walk there at the start of each week and uh, stay there for the five nights of the working week in the madrasa dormitory. At the same time, Mahmoud would uh, travel to Kabul, which is about a three-hour drive from his home, and uh, he would resell construction supplies, which he received in bulk from uh, Pakistan and India. Um, you know, he, they lived a very modest existence before Mahmoud left for Kabul that week and before the boys left for the madrasa, the boys both asked him if he could buy them uh, new shoes while he was in Kabul. It was two or three mornings after that that Mahmoud received a call from his wife in uh, from home in Nurk District. And she didn't explain exactly what had happened, but she was clearly um, panicked, um, and and very obviously upset. So Mahmoud uh, locked up his shop in Kabul immediately and um, jumped in a taxi and, and headed back uh, back to the village in, in Wardak. Before he left Kabul, he stopped at a bazaar that sells clothes and shoes and he, and he bought two pairs of shoes uh, for his boys and then um, proceeded on uh, for the rest of the way into, into Wardak. And so he went directly home. He didn't, he didn't at this stage know um, what had happened at the madrasa. So he, he went uh, directly home where he found his wife and a number of other family members and um, other men from the village crowded around his two sons aged eight and nine. And as he described and, and as was clearly evident in his um in his manner and his behavior he was i mean he he kind of he kind of lost his mind ever since then and he had um he didn't make any distinction between the uh, afghan government and their security forces and the americans he saw them as all equally to blame and ever since then he had started uh, lashing out at any moment that he came across um, uh, Afghan security forces, whether they, whether they be police or army. And he said to me, and this was quite common uh, among the survivors, among the surviving family members of these, um, of the victims of these raids, that he wanted revenge. And that's all that life was about for him from that, from the moment that he saw his, his boys 
uh, dead on the floor of his home. And in, in fact, he said his heart wouldn't rest until he, until he got revenge. This man's two boys were just two more victims out of the more than 150,000 total deaths in Afghanistan since the U.S. invaded in October of 2001, according to a recent study by Brown University. And it's worth stepping back for a moment and unpacking what is going on in Afghanistan, because as we know from the Afghanistan papers, everything that our leaders have told us about that war for the last two decades is essentially a lie. We're going to start with what the Washington Post is calling the Afghan papers. That's right. We didn't know what we were doing, devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. If Americans knew the magnitude of this dysfunction, these are just some of the statements, Eve, coming from a three-star army general, um, two government interviewers in 2015 about the war in Afghanistan. Uh, that's being reported by the Washington Post, who obtained this information under the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, the war in Afghanistan, the U.S.'s longest ever running war, one of the most expensive um, to date, costing about $1 trillion. And what we discover is that U.S. officials lied about winning the war in Afghanistan during its 18-year campaign. It spent more money and spent more troops when it knew pertinently that it was losing that war. That's right. The mightiest empire in the world has spent over a trillion dollars over 20 years to try and defeat the Taliban. Yet, as Richard Lockman points out in an article for Jacobin Sister Journal Catalyst, in 2017, General John Nicholson, the new American commander in Afghanistan, stated without irony in testimony to the Senate Armed Services Committee, quote, of the 98 U.S. designated terrorist groups globally, 20 operate in the Afghanistan-Pakistan region. This is the highest concentration of terrorist groups anywhere in the world. So in other words, uh, Nicholson pointed, uh, pointed out that the number of terrorist groups has increased the longer the U.S. has remained in Afghanistan. And since that is the place where the U.S. has fought its longest war, Afghanistan now has the highest concentration of terrorist groups in the world. So 20 years ago, we went to Afghanistan because they were harboring terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda. But now there are more terrorist groups there than ever before. In that article, Lockman posits the question, how can we explain this dichotomy between unparalleled military advantage over all rival powers and a virtually unblemished record of military defeat since the end of the Cold War? And how has the strange mix of great military capacity and inability to use that power to attain military victories affected America's ability to maintain, maintain geopolitical hege hegemony? Save for a couple exceptions, the United States military has essentially lost every war it has fought since World War II, despite having overwhelming military power compared to its rivals. And according to Lockman, this is due to three main factors. First, the Pentagon directs its ample budget towards purchases of complex high-tech weapons, which are designed to fight wars against the Soviet Union, Russia, and China, rather than on cheaper and simpler weapons and training for troops and the tactics needed for the sorts of counterinsurgency war the U.S. actually fights. So basically, a huge chunk of the vast military budget goes to these big, powerful toys, like the infamous F-35 jet, which are mostly useless when fighting the kind of irregular wars the U.S. engages in. The second factor, according to Lockman, is 
Opposition by the American public to significant American but not foreign casualties, an aversion that developed as part of the growing resistance during Vietnam and after to U.S. aggression abroad, forces the adoption of war strategies that limit interactions between American soldiers and war zone civilians, reducing the possibilities of accumulating the intelligence and local goodwill necessary for winning counterinsurgency wars. And this is why we see things like these CIA-trained death squads. Instead of having American boots on the ground fighting the insurgency, better to train locals to do it with American support. And third, and this one is really the crucial one to me, local populations are further alienated by the U.S. government's turn in the 21st century to a form of plunder neoliberalism in the country it invades. This reduces opportunities for local elites to enrich themselves and therefore makes it almost impossible for the U.S. to enlist reliable local allies. It also impoverishes impoverishes the mass of locals, creating enough anger and desperation to power insurgencies. The simple way to understand this last point is to look at a classic case from the Bush era, the role of Halliburton in the Iraq war. Before he became vice president, Dick Cheney was the CEO of Halliburton, a large oil field services manufacturer. Now, after the U.S. invaded Iraq, contracts worth billions of dollars were awarded to Halliburton to handle a lot of the country's reconstruction and the management of its oil, instead of some Iraqi company that can be then used as a patronage system to win over the local ruling class. This was a case of the U.S. empire doing what Lockman calls neoliberal plunder. It invades another country and then essentially privatizes large part of its state assets and hands it over to a U.S. firm rather than a local, uh, than allowing a local chunk of the native population, usually respected elites, to enrich itself as part of its collaboration with the American invaders. So the situation in Afghanistan right now is quite thorny. It is true that on the one hand, the U.S. presence is probably key in helping the Afghan government keep the Taliban somewhat at bay. But on the other hand, the structural incentives at every level of American power are such that anything but a state of perpetual forever war are resisted viciously. And the longer the U.S. stays, the more fuel it gives to the Taliban. Just look at how difficult it was for both Obama and Trump to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. When Trump indicated he wanted to get out of Afghanistan last November, Mitch McConnell took to the Senate floor to lead a bipartisan response, slamming the decision. A rapid withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan now would hurt our allies and delight, delight the people who wish us harm. Violence affecting Afghans is still rampant. The Taliban is not abiding by the conditions of the so-called peace deal. The consequences of a premature American exit would likely be even worse than President Obama's withdrawal from Iraq back in 2011, which fueled fueled the rise of ISIS and a new round of global terrorism. And Trump did sign a sort of peace agreement with the Taliban, although it's certainly very, very shaky and it crucially excluded the Afghan government. And there is a real fear that when the U.S. gets out, the Taliban will easily override the weak and corrupt Afghan government and reinstitute a partic- its particular brand of fundamentalist Islamic law. And it's a sort of catch-22. So I asked my friend Daniel Bessner, a foreign policy expert and professor of history at the University of Washington, to give me his thoughts. 
so the question of Afghanistan is kind of a difficult one, uh, and I've been thinking about this a little bit because uh, it's a big focus of Obama's memoir. Um, he essentially presents Iraq as, you know, a fait accompli. He knew that he was going to get out of there right away, but Afghanistan is a more um, complex problem. Uh, in Obama's framing, it's because the United States had, you know, a just, uh, a just cause to go after the country that harbored Osama bin Laden, uh, and that was generally, you know, the people who were saying that Afghanistan was a quote-unquote war of necessity and Iraq was a war of choice in the 2000s. Um, well, I would say from today's perspective that essentially the United States just needs to remove um, its troops. It's been, you know, almost 20 years, now 20 years now, come November, um, and uh, a lot of different strategies have been tried, counterinsurgency versus counterterrorism, um, different levels of troops, uh, various alliances made with different stakeholders, and essentially none have worked. And there's um, a variety, I mean, worked, what does that even mean? Work is an imperial adventure, which was essentially to build, you know, a quote-unquote democratic nation state or control the area in terms of regional security. And there's a lot of complex reasons why the United States believes that it has a, a significant national interest in Afghanistan, or I mean, the United States foreign policy establishment, but I'm not going to get into that now. But just to say that it's essentially, in my opinion, the fact that the United States should uh, leave the country. Now, the question uh, does arise about what is the quote-unquote United States' responsibility to a country that it destroyed, you know, for two decades. And I think those are, um, that's an important issue that can't just be uh, ignored. It probably has to do uh, come in some form of redistribution, material redistribution to the area, um, but also the United States basically removing the uh, imperial structures of empire that it has developed over the course of the last several decades um, of essentially uh, occupying and being military, uh, militarily involved in Afghanistan. Um, so there's a lot more to the issue, but that's essentially my general take is that the United States needs to leave um, as soon as possible. At the end of the day, the U.S. should not be imposing itself on the world through force. This does not mean that we should be advocating for a policy of pure isolationism. Instead, we should think of a new internationalist foreign policy in which we provide genuine aid and support for working people, rather than dropping bombs and plundering their national resources. We should be thinking of trade agreements, for example, that protect workers and the environment in other countries rather than corporate interests. We should stop fueling senseless violence in the name of stopping terrorism or drug trade. All of those things are worthy goals. But the first step in that is that we have to pull the U.S. military machine out. Whenever there is a debate over something like Afghanistan or Syria or whatever, people can come up with theoretical ways in which a powerful country like the U.S. could theoretically use its military to end the conflict and bring peace. But unfortunately, you go to war with the military machine you got, and as we've seen time and again, the American war machine is structurally built in a way that only makes matters worse. Since the U.S. launched its global war on terror 20 years ago, millions of people have been killed. Tens of millions have been displaced. And we can tie ourselves into not justifying any one discrete military action. But the big picture remains, and that is one of unfathomable death and destruction. And we've got to stop it as soon as possible. Nando, you're so comprehensive um, in, in your decode segments that it's hard to add anything to what you say. But um, just briefly, there, there were a few things I wanted to just quickly mention, um, including knowing this context uh, when you listen to someone like Secretary of State Mike Pompeo give a speech where he pretends to care about human rights abuses in places like China, uh, in places like Iran. 
Um, now, that's not to say that human rights abuses don't exist, right? Um, and, and I think uh, people who make that argument in good faith should be listened to. However, Mike Pompeo and people like him usually point to those so-called human rights abuses um, to specifically justify U.S. intervention um, and, more importantly, their efforts to further destabilize uh, regions of the world. So, uh, I mean, we're seeing it happen in Afghanistan right now. Uh, you bring up the point, Nando, about how the counterinsurgency efforts uh, have failed, and it's actually led to, um, you know, more uh, of these groups popping up in places like Afghanistan. And I don't think that's a mistake. I think that that's absolutely intentional. And if you see what, um, you know, private defense contractors and weapons manufacturers are doing right now uh, through funding think tanks, which then put out these ridiculous, uh, you know, studies that urge um, intervention uh, in, in various parts of the, of, of the world, they just want to sell more weapons. And like in the case of China, for instance, that that whole effort has led to selling more weapons, a record number of weapons to places like Japan. Now, increasing weapons in, in you know, that part of the world, is that going to lead to more peace or is it going to destabilize the region? Like we know that there's a possibility of it de destabilizing the region. And I think that's exactly what the military industrial complex wants. They love the perpetual war. And I think what they've seen lately is, all right, well, uh, the appetite for war in the Middle East is, is really starting to taper off in the United States. So we need to find the new enemy. And that's why you've heard people like Mike, Mike Pompeo and the Trump administration, not just them, Democrats as well, uh, ramp up their rhetoric against China by citing you know, what they're allegedly concerned about, which is the human rights abuses toward the Uyghur Muslims. Now, again, to deny those human rights ex abuses exist, I think is wrong. They do exist. Uh, but it's also important to point out how those talking points are utilized um, in bad faith by people like Pompeo to justify our involvement in that region. Uh, you know, the United States selling weapons to India and Japan. Like, that's what they do. Uh, that's the real motivating factor when it comes to uh, those tied to uh, the corporations that make money off of war. Um, so, again, I just think it's the point. It's not the bug, it's the feature. Um, destabilizing these regions, um, you know, having a failed counterinsurgency effort, like that's all I think part of the plan. I know I'm being a little speculative, um, but when you look at the actual private interests involved and the material gains involved for corporations in the United States, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. And, and, and the, the thing that was remarkable to me uh, about this was just the complete silence from the rest of the media um, I mean, you know, when I was researching this segment, the only outlets that really picked up this inter intercept story were TYT and um, and Democracy Now. Uh, other than that, no, I like mean, we had to. Yeah, we had to hit up NATO and make sure that our right. NATO funders were OK with us right. covering this story. And they gave us the green light. So, right. I mean, obviously, I'm I love it when that happens. By NATO, but like, yeah, I love it. No, th this is an important story. I know. I know. But yeah, <laughs> it's just an important story. But complete silence from the media. Not a single, yeah. you know, not not a, you know, NBC News didn't pick it up. CBS, didn't, none none of them picked it up. The New York Times hasn't picked it up. Nothing. It is a truly horrifying. Like if you read the story in the Intercept, it's absolutely breathtaking. I mean, and it's incredibly detailed in its reporting. I mean, they they clearly 
were very, very careful with this and spent a long, long time um, verifying everything. They talked to hundreds of people in in, in a very remote part of the world. Um, a- Andrew himself like has lived in Afghanistan for seven years. Like he knows the, the region well. Um, this wasn't just some like fly by night journalist who came in and talked to a couple people and made this. No, this was a very, very carefully done story, and it just got no attention. And then you compare that to um, last year, last summer, when there was a very incredibly speculative report citing anonymous U.S. intelligence officials about Russians supposedly paying uh, Taliban fighters to kill U.S. soldiers and how that was covered in the U.S. media. And you start to see how these structural things play out, how how the the, the just how our war machine kind of can fire up every structure of society when it when it kind of needs to. Um, and I mean, and the new thing now is that, that Trump uh, is just releasing like kind of, quote, anonymous intelligence sources saying that China is now paying uh, Taliban soldiers to to kill yep. American, you know, it's absolutely wild. All that, all that stuff is not absolutely zero corroboration. It just comes from anonymous U.S. intelligence sources. There's nothing to show that this is actually true. This story talked to people on the ground, eyewitness accounts, family members, friends, people. They went to those places and have actual evidence of these atrocities taking place and zero, just zero pickup from the media. It's really, really really remarkable and just like a classic case study in how the media in this country operates as a sort of propaganda wing of the ruling class, certainly, but especially, especially the the military industrial complex. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, our guest for today uh, has been incredibly patient um, and I want to bring her on because we're going to have um, a fantastic conversation about how the left can strategize to accomplish some policy goals. Um, joining us now is TV producer and writer whose work has appeared on the Atlantic, Slate, Pacific Standard, and Jacobin, Natalie Schur. Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time to come speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So um, I'm really excited uh, because I love following your work and um, I've been meaning to have a discussion with you on TYT, but it's great that you're here with us on Jacobin. Um, and, you know, you've been uh, pretty involved in the debates that's, that have been taking place very much online uh, regarding um, a floor vote on Medicare for all. Um, and I, I wanted to start off with a question uh, that's kind of related. Uh, it has to do with a vote that just took place in the Senate. 41 Democrats voted to block uh, Joe Biden's effort. I'm sorry, Bernie Sanders's effort uh, to demand that the uh, Senate have a vote on $2,000 direct checks uh, to Americans as part of the relief package. Again, 41 uh, Democrats voted along with Schumer to block Bernie's effort in doing that. And what uh, uh, Bernie was using for leverage, of course, was a uh, uh, unanimous consent vote on, um, you know, passing the National Defense Authorization Act, something that, you know, uh, everyone seems to really, really want. Democrats voted against Bernie in that effort. I bring that up because $2,000 direct checks to Americans is wildly popular uh, across the board. doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. Uh, this pandemic has put you in a crisis, an economic crisis. People desperately need that relief. And yet after uh, these 41 Democrats were willing to put their name on blocking Bernie Sanders's effort, uh, there was no groundswell. 
uh, it, it appears that it didn't even really get much attention in the corporate press. Uh, progressive media, of course, covered it, but there was no groundswell. Um, it didn't lead to some sort of uh, unrest. It didn't lead to any type of activism or organizing. And so uh, why do you think that is? Why do you think it is that this vote happened and it didn't really lead to much change or reaction? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that that vote was really unconscionable. And I think that a lot of people, I'm sure watching this show would absolutely agree uh, and I think that what that shows is that popularity of a given measure doesn't necessarily translate into uh, grassroots power um, that you actually need to force politicians to do things. Uh, you know, just because something's popular, it doesn't necessarily mean that people have built the alliances, that they've done the deep organizing that actually get people out onto the streets, uh, that actually, you know, get people to occupy offices of elected officials that get them to make calls, that get them to march, things like that. And that those things are really, really difficult. Uh, and they're extremely important, but they take a lot of time. Uh, and you can't necessarily just snap your fingers or tweet about something uh, and, you know, automatically enlist that groundswell and deploy people the way that you need them to be deployed. Uh, that that is a long and difficult game. I, uh, w one thing that struck me um, throughout this whole debate, and it's something that I, I mean, I, when it first kind of happened and I just, for the when it first started and I saw this proposal, I was relatively agnostic towards it in the sense that I was like, mm -hmm. this is some sort of like very insidery maneuver that, you know, may or may not be positive or like it, it, it didn't strike me as any, anything that important or anything that was going to move the ball in any direction um, that meaningfully. But one thing that struck me was that a lot of people that have been involved in the fight for Medicare for all at the organizational level for many years, uh, people like yourself, you've written tons on, on healthcare policy um, over the last few years. Your husband, Adam Gaffney, as the, as the you know, mm -hmm. head of the PNHP for, for several years, the DSA Medicare for All Caucus, uh, Tim Faust, who wrote a very important book on, on called mm -hmm. Health Justice Now, and has been a long time sort of healthcare um, activist and organizer uh, involved in the Idaho Medicaid. Million, like all the people who kind of been working on, on this issue as, as not necessarily as part of their full-time job, but as, as a sort of th their key part of their political work, um, we're not necessarily, we're not like very enthusiastic about this particular tactic um, and, and, you know, have sort of talked about the, the, the need for um, a different kind of organizing strategy. And I just, I guess I just wanted to ask you as one of the people who have been a long time um, healthcare uh both expert uh, and activist, what what does that look like? What does that kind of organization look like? Yeah, so I, I mean, I guess I'll preface it by saying uh, I think that there are people who support force the vote uh, that I greatly admire um, that are rank and file activists in some cases uh, that are doing so in good faith. Um, ultimately, I mean, it's a tactic and it might be a good tactic. It might be a bad tactic. Um, either way, uh, whether or not it happens, whether or not someone supports it, I think that uh, the path forward still looks similar either way. Um, I think that, you know, a reason that I was somewhat skeptical about the idea and that some other longtime organizers were is because, um, you know, it, it is difficult to marshal the organizing power to make things like this effective uh, that I was mentioning before. 
Uh, and then if something like this were to happen uh, and the people backing it most fervently, I think it has to be regarded as part of a strategy um, to, you know, if, if the goal is to expose Democrats for not supporting this thing during a pandemic, which, you know, is is a it can be a galvanizing thing for people. I understand why they're interested in doing that. Then there's still uh, there's there's still work that needs to be done as a result. Right. So if you're if you're exposing Democrats, okay, what what does that mean moving forward? Well, that's probably, you know, a a locally specific question. So something like, you know, people who support this tactic might be interested in, um, you know, zeroing in on a few reps that they think are particularly hostile toward Medicare for all that are in districts that are maybe more amenable to the idea. I think that that's somewhat close to the Justice Democrats model there's a good chance that in some of those districts, there might already be uh, a campaign or there might already be people who have experience working with insurgent primary candidates. And that, you know, someone who is a support the vote ban uh, would be a really incredible addition to an organizing group along those lines. Um, In states like New York and California, there are really active state level single payer coalitions because those are states in which conditions are uh, friendlier to single payer right now and that have had uh, organizing coalitions that have developed uh, over the course of several years that have, you know, pushed the ball forward where people are doing educational events where they're working on building that deep and broad support for uh, what I think we can all agree is a really morally urgent uh, reform in the United States. So that's already happening in certain states. Uh, anyone who's a proponent of force the vote and Medicare for all and is in a union uh, has a really great opportunity to lobby their union, to, you know, organize with rank and file that also support Medicare for all and, uh, you know, really try to push this to the front of their union's agenda and try to tap into uh, their union's power to win this thing. I think that that's something that the Medicare for all movement uh, needs to do more of in general. Uh, I think that the labor component of this can be really difficult. Uh, there's also, you know, the idea that people can organize a union if they're not currently in the in one and they're a worker. Um, you know, that's obviously not a super fast road. And I understand people's uh, frustration with that. Um, but that's, you know, I think a, a way forward to, you know, get to to change the political tides in the way that we need to change the political tides. Uh, And there's also, you know, just educational canvases in the districts of Democrats who don't support this, but should, Um, you know, there are DSA chapters, there are, you know, NNU groups, there are healthcare advocates already doing that in many different communities, you can join a canvas. And even if there's not, um, you know, a specific legislative demand on the table in a given district, speaking to the reps to make sure that, you know, the idea of exposing Democrats for not supporting this during a pandemic, whether or not a floor vote happens. We already have a list of people who are co-sponsors, who aren't co-sponsors, or even people who are co-sponsors that, you know, there's reason to believe that they're maybe not, uh, you know, as fervently dedicated. I think that people can still use that as, you know, an opportunity, basically a a peg to to go knock on doors and start to develop more support uh, for this demand. Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think first of all, all of the various details that you de- you mentioned right now are important. Um, this argument that we absolutely need to do uh, this, uh, you know, this vote, 
uh, because it's going to identify who we need to target, which Democratic lawmakers we need to target. I just think that that's such a weak argument, considering we already know. We already know. And I'm not just talking about people who have uh, co-signed on that legislation, but don't actually genuinely support it. It's not that difficult to look into who funds the campaigns of these Democratic lawmakers, who cynically, you know, uh, signs on to legislation in order to appeal to the progressive base, but doesn't actually support it. I mean, we already have names of people who are on the record saying they oppose Medicare for all. And so what are the force the vote people doing in organizing in order to maybe primary those individuals. And if the effort is to primary uh, lawmakers who aren't on board for progressive policies, well, it is kind of interesting that most of the uh, discussion that I've heard about primarying has focused on going after actual progressives in Congress who have been trying to fight for these things, who are on our side, and we need to strengthen their numbers in Congress. Right. We need to specifically target corporate Democrats, but it doesn't seem like that's really what this is about. The conversation has centered on um, AOC and how AOC allegedly isn't doing enough because she's refusing to go on various uh, shows and podcasts um, for people's vanity projects. Anyway, yeah, I'm 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 I've had enough of this, basically. So um, if you're uh, friendly to this nonsense uh, that's going on right now, you're not going to enjoy my commentary. I don't want you to, you know, go after Natalie or Nando for that. You can go after me. But let's just let's let's call this what it is. Um, one one other thing is Natalie. Prior to this becoming a thing, right, the idea of using leverage um, against uh, Nancy Pelosi's speakership, you had actually written about it in Jacobin. Um, Now, right now, uh, as you're mentioning incredibly important strategic maneuvers and you're highlighting certain flaws with this whole force the vote effort, you're being called all sorts of ridiculous names. You're a sellout, corporate this, whatever. Uh, But in reality, in November of uh, 2013, 20, November 13th specifically, you published this in Jacobin. You wrote, there are ample opportunities for leftists and progressives in Congress to wield their power to reorient uh, party priorities, starting with opposing Nancy Pelosi's reelection as House Speaker. So, um, oh, wow, that's interesting. Looks like uh, Jimmy Dore wasn't the only person who had this idea. Uh, You also write that the left flank of the House can parlay their small numbers into exerting an outsized influence. While this coalition's power stems largely from its ability to marshal uh, media attention and outside support, they'll soon outnumber the margin of majority uh, held by House Democrats who lost several seats in an election seen as a shocking disappointment down ballot. Opposing Pelosi's reelection as speaker would be an early opportunity to test the concept, apply pressure and win concessions if they come up short. The same way a smaller and weaker group of progressive legislators did in 2018, brokering key committee assignments for their votes and turning congressional hearings into agitprop. So you didn't specify or demand uh, a vote on Medicare for all, but you did talk about the importance of identifying uh, the leverage that these progressives have. So you are in favor of challenging Nancy Pelosi. Um, can you elaborate a little more on, um, you know, what you were getting at in this Jacobin piece? Sure. Yeah. So I think uh, no one on the left should harbor any illusions about Nancy Pelosi being on our side. Uh, she's obviously not. Um, she holds a lot of structural power that would be held by another corporate Democrat. Uh, 
if and when she is challenged. So I think that people should also, um, you know, not harbor illusions about what it means to replace her. Uh, but certainly progressives can and should uh, use their leverage and I think function more as a block the way that, I mean, the progressive caucus has said not only that they're going to try to function more as a political block and, um, you know, enforce more ideological um, discipline, but that they're also going to, um, you know, be a little stricter about who's who can be part of progressive caucus and, you know, what it means to be part of the progressive caucus so that people like Nancy Pelosi can't just be in it by paying dues and, you know, without meeting any standards. So I think it'll be interesting to watch how that happens. Um, you know, the, the leverage that they have is is real, but shouldn't be overstated. Um, I think that, you know, it just started breaking last night. I, I can't say that I've, I've read uh, too much of the news about this, but, you know, using progressive power to eliminate things like PAYGO, uh, which might not necessarily pay dividends this term, given, you know, the makeup of the Senate and who Joe Biden is and who's still holding power, but does set a precedent for future terms that will be incredibly important for anyone who supports Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, etc. Um, you know, I think that the fact that, um, you know, the, the, the force the vote argument, I think, does rely on political spectacle and theater largely, and that that's not a bad thing. There have been really effective uses of uh, agitprop and political theater. I think that we've seen that to some degree over the past few years with committee assignments and with, um, you know, the way that the squad has been able to, the squad, Katie Porter, some others, have been able to use uh, their position in um, congressional hearings in ways that we've seen less of in the past. Uh, they also um, used leverage last term to get hearings on Medicare for all that are entered into the congressional record, which I think have also been important elements of political theater. Uh, most importantly, you know, Nancy Pelosi right now is uh, almost certainly going to become the next speaker because we don't have uh, an alternative. We don't have a campaign with the numbers. Um, you know, I, when I say we, um, you know, the, the progressive left and certainly the more progressive left members in Congress haven't rallied behind uh, an opponent yet, and they should definitely start thinking about that very soon uh, so that they are able to, you know, counter someone like Hakeem Jeffries, who is discussed as, you know, the heir apparent um, whenever Democrats uh, next control the House. Can you explain what, what PAYGO is? Um, yeah, so so PAYGO is um, a rule that I believe instituted in 2007 um, that was designed to, um, you know, you're not allowed to start any new spending without eliminating old spending. So it's a, it's a budget uh, balancing measure, um, which is obviously, you know, I mean, based on some, I think, uh, pretty outdated uh, economic ideas, uh, as far as I understand, uh, and is also obviously um, a massive roadblock to passing anything with, uh, on the order of spending that, you know, Medicare for all and Green New Deal will have. Yeah, it's it's an incredibly important carve out uh, for legislation like the Green New Deal, like Medicare for all. I mean, these little, it might appear as though it's nothing more than like small, subtle changes. But what it does is it essentially makes it easier 
to pass this type of legislation um, as soon as uh, you have enough support in Congress uh, to have this vote, right? And mm-hmm. what I think is incredibly fascinating is how much this is being um, minimized by the force the vo- vote people, as if this wasn't a giant impediment on, on actually passing Medicare for all. So I agree with you on the theater. I think theater is part of uh, getting legislation passed, but it's not the end all be all. The organizing, of course, is an important uh, uh, portion of this. You need a multi-pronged approach. You need to ensure that you get rid of roadblocks ahead of time so when the vote happens, uh, you're actually able to get it passed and you don't have these issues about, um, you know, paygo uh, standing in the way. And Ryan Grimm is the one who reported on this uh, and, you know, uh, tweeted about it as well last night saying progressives in the House have won a rules change that would allow Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, or other big ticket agenda items to be exempted from PAYGO. This was a necessary step in opening the way for it. And AOC also uh, chimed in on this saying, so these rules changes, so the so these rule changes are a big deal, and not only on health care, uh, they are structural changes in the House that level the playing field for a full suite of flagship legislation, locks in that field for the next two years, and establishes precedent um, for after. Uh, this is not easy, or this was not easy. And, you know, she didn't detail what progressives were up to behind the scenes when this forced the vote uh, debate started on Twitter, but... My guess is this was part of the strategy that she was um, alluding to uh, without giving much detail on Twitter, because, yeah, you need to get uh, corporate Democrats on board to vote in favor of uh, carving out these exceptions for PAYGO. Um, so, again, I just think it's interesting that these are the types of things that get minimized. I get it. People are angry. I'm angry, too. Uh, when I'm angry, I do all sorts of things that feel good in the moment. Uh, but then later I reflect back and think, oh, maybe that was a little counterproductive. Maybe I should have been a little more strategic in how I responded to that. I feel like that's what's happening this moment. And it's um, it's really shameful because all it's really done is it hasn't accomplished a damn thing. And it's divided the left when in reality we should be fighting in solidarity to get these policy goals accomplished. That was more of a statement than a question, but <laughs> I, I think that's true. And it kind of leads me to, um, you know, one important thing that I don't necessarily think has been brought up a lot. Um, you know, th- when it comes to exposing Democrats who are the roadblocks here, I think you bring up some good points that, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily do that. And, you know, why would there be necessarily a difference in exposure between who's co-sponsoring uh, a bill that isn't about to pass versus who's voting for a bill that isn't about to pass. I don't think those would necessarily be different people. So, you know, I'm not sure that we'd be exposing any, you know, new sham co-sponsors. But more than that, I think that what we have to back up and realize here is that, um, you know, when it comes to what Medicare for all is, it's an absolutely urgent, uh, important and moral demand that we absolutely have to fight for. Uh, it's also really big. It's, you know, arguably the most downwardly redistributive piece of legislation in American history. It fundamentally upends a three half trillion dollar industry. Now, of course, you know, different, different parts of that industry are affected in different ways by Medicare for all, but it does fundamentally change how they're paid. It changes their business model. The, the degree of confrontation with capital here is, I mean, just mind boggling and immense. And so what we have to realize is that that means, you know, and they haven't even really started pushing back against us yet, right? Like there's the 
um, the, the United um, Industry Group for single or against single payer that's put in about, I think, five million dollars. Uh, you know, we have to expect when Medicare for all builds momentum, when we do start getting more powerful and getting closer to the realm where this can actually be passed, there's basically no limit to the amount of money uh, and opposition that they will throw at us. And in that context, you know, who's who's really for Medicare for all and who's the you know, who are the ones who are going to try to wiggle out of it? I think we have to understand that the majority of reps are going to try to wiggle out of it unless we build strength mm-hmm. to stop them. Uh, and that that's what we have to do. And then that's more than just, you know, how many people support Medicare for all in, uh, you know, a, a telephone poll. Uh, that has to do with, you know, building so much power um, through, you know, the labor movement and on the ground that they feel like their hands are forced into doing this. Um, and that that's what we have to think about. And that's an incredibly daunting task. I'm not trying to tell anyone it's not. Uh, and there is no, you know, quick fun trick. There's no hack to get us there sooner. And I think that that's a lot of the promise that people saw in Force the Vote. And we have to think more broadly and whether or not it happens. And there were people who were, you know, pushing it on or who were making points on both sides for great reasons. We should all be on the same side and we should all be, you know, thinking broadly about how to build that pressure to, you know, keep all of the Democrats uh, who have co-sponsored this bill and, you know, others that will be elected in the future, that the only way we have to force them to support this is to, you know, make a show of people power on an order that is just not comparable to what we have right now. This this whole thing has had me kind of in a state of slight despair because I think it's it strikes me as the culmination of a um, process that has been brewing since the defeat of the Bernie campaign in that um, the Bernie campaign, the the Bernie campaign for president was a sort of organizing um, unit for the left in America. Um, It was kind of, in a way, it was kind of like a slight version of the hack that you're talking about. I mean, there is no left power anywhere in the world, anywhere in history without labor power. And the United States right now has the lowest labor power it's had in a hundred years um, or in 70 years. And um, without that kind of organizing unit, which was the Bernie presidential campaign, we're revealed to not have any actual power. And what we're seeing is a sort of, I don't, I mean, it's kind of like a temper tantrum or like a, you know, just kind of a, a void in which um, this kind of thing just kind of emerges and and sort of takes over the 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 conversation and basically pits everyone against each other and and you know is it becomes incredibly destructive. So, I guess my question is, um, what like what do we do into create either a new organizing principle kind of like the the, the Bernie campaign, um, but but also just more long term build that kind of power that we need to do. I mean, it's just that that's what this that's what this is kind of, I think, manifesting is this sort of the the sort of void that we're in right now, this kind of interregnum um, that we're in. And, and I don't know what comes next or what we should do uh, next. Yeah, I mean, I think you're on the right, you know, when you say the, the Bernie campaign was sort of this, this cool trick, this hack, this shortcut. I think that's true. But the key was, you know, I think that it, 
least my understanding of the Bernie campaign and why I was so passionate about it, why I, you know, canvassed for him so many times in New Hampshire and Massachusetts is because I thought that the promise of the Bernie campaign and his candidacy was that his prominence and his, um, you know, presidency was potentially a hack to grow a movement, you know, that that's not typically how we think of movements grown top down. Um, but that he was kind of providing this organizing principle. And that's what got me excited. What he wasn't in himself was, you know, a, a shortcut to getting the big things, you know, I mean, people are right when they said, okay, but how, you know, but how is he going to pass it? He doesn't have the votes in Senate and he didn't, how he was going to pass it was that he would accelerate uh, you know, a movement um, in whatever term, you know, I, I can't, I can't say what the time timeline would have been um, given the fact that he didn't win and, you know, it hasn't happened, but uh, that, that he would be able to facilitate the building of a movement, which are the engines of history. You know, we know, we know that massive change on the order that Medicare for all would be requires uh, a disruptive large grassroots movement with people on the ground. And then I think that he was a way of getting there. And so I think that our marching orders are the same. Uh, you know, the, the fact that Bernie Bernie hasn't won is, um, you know, really it's demoralizing in a lot of ways. And I think that there has been, um, you know, some confusion. I think that there's been a sort of power vacuum uh, and that there's not necessarily someone leading the movement uh, in a way that he kind of came to, um, but that, you know, there are, local groups who are doing these kind of things. And if there's not local groups, then people can organize on their own. But, you know, the answer to any question of, you know, whether or not force the vote would have happened, whether or not any procedural vote happened, whether or not we get certain types of agitprop, all of it is going to require um, organizing with other allies, being out in the world and, um, you know, enlisting people to your side, making sure that those tactics are as effective as they can be. Um, and so, you know, that means that sometimes you're organizing with people that frustrate you and that you don't necessarily like personally and that you are uh, finding things in common with people who don't always agree with you. And, you know, there's there's a different set of things that make sense on Twitter and, you know, how people engage with others and how you engage with them in real life and in organizing spaces. and you know, I think that we have to start thinking about the latter. Yeah, no, I, I think that you make such a great point, um, which brings us to the second half of this discussion that I think is worth having. Um, previously, I wanted to just discuss uh, the strategy, uh, the upsides, the downsides without um, involving a discussion about Jimmy Dore. Uh, but that's impossible at this point. And what we keep hearing from um, his supporters or more importantly, his apologists is that, no, 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 it doesn't matter. Jimmy doesn't matter. If you don't like him, it doesn't matter. Uh, just focus on force the vote. What do you think about the strategy? Okay, I addressed the strategy. Uh, we've talked about it ad nauseum. We've we've gone over it. Uh, but it is important to also discuss who they've decided to put front and center on this effort, uh, because it is important to at least be able to be welcoming to people who want to join this effort, right? You want to be appealing to people who want to get engaged in this organizing. And um, I would argue that someone who, again, 
they have decided to put front and center, whether it's in the town hall, the discussions, the debates, Twitter, all over the place. You can't have a discussion about this without coming across uh, Jimmy Dore's uh, stuff, basically. Um, and it's an issue, especially when his form of communicating looks something like this. Everybody yeah. sees through you. What has she ever fucking done? Because you're corrupted and co-opted. You gaslighting, bullshitting actress. You fucking phony. You don't lift a fucking finger. What AOC is doing right now is evil. She's trying to keep you from Medicare for all. We're going to fucking haunt you. I'm the problem. Fuck you. Uh, Alexandria has been a political phenomenon. It is hard to believe that she has been in office for less than one year. And yet she has helped transform politics in America. She has been an inspiration to millions of working people and young people throughout this country. What a fucking cuck. He is worthless. And AOC sounds like Neera Tandon. Every bullshit fucking reason not to have Medicare for all. Yeah, sorry. I think I think most people uh, who genuinely believe in progressive politics will come across content like that and be turned off by it. So if you want to build a broad coalition that actually fights for these progressive policies, um, maybe putting someone like him front and center ain't the way to do it. And it is interesting that he's uh, focused all of his energy on someone who actually does want to fight for these policies, AOC, while um, minimizing the destructive nature of people like Donald Trump, who uh, he advocated would actually be better than Hillary Clinton in the 2016 elections, and minimized how destructive it would be for Donald Trump uh, to successfully appoint um, Supreme Court justices, who, by the way, he managed, of course, uh, to confirm three of them who, yes, are conservative, but more importantly, are very friendly to the corporate world and threaten the passage of policies like Medicare for all. Um, so uh, the fact that they've been so in denial and defensive toward anyone making the point that I'm making right now is hilarious because it shows that there is no real strategy here. There's no real thought about what they're doing and whether or not it's actually counterproductive. At first, you know, the proposal's one thing. Okay, let's have a discussion about it. Let's talk, let's discuss the merits. But now this has turned into nothing more than a, uh, a litmus test, purity contest, uh, specifically focused on progressive Democrats, members of the squad, especially AOC. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, over the past couple of years on the left, um, there's kind of been, there's been a lot of discussion about civility politics. Um, and I think that there are times when um, civility is, you know, this obnoxious request made by extremely powerful people to subvert accountability. Um, and, you know, tamper demands. And then I think that, you know, in a more organizing context, uh, which you need to, you know, if you're, if you're trying to uh, successfully um, win something like force the vote or certainly Medicare for all writ large, then, you know, that means building alliances. None of us can do it alone. Uh, and so, you know, your spokespeople matter. Uh, the way that you engage with people matters. Um, you know, if you have this force the force the vote idea and people who have expressed relatively mild skepticism of it have been, 
you know, attacked and called sellouts. I don't, you know, I mean, people can say to me personally, or I'm sure you too personally, whatever they want, we can take it. Um, but, you know, there are, there are a lot more people who are reading these things, who are understanding these things, um, you know, people who maybe even do a lot of work or want to do uh, organizing work in real life. Um, and, you know, building, building a movement where there's a place for all of those people, um, I think takes uh, a different way of relating to people. And, you know, I think I've, I've always been a little skeptical of the forced vote tactic for reasons that I've outlined. But, you know, as I've said before, I think if I felt like this was being approached more seriously as something like, you know, force the vote can be a movement building tool. Here's how we're going to do it. Um, you know, here's how we're going to really like maximize the the reach of what happens. And then, you know, when we when we do expose the Democrats, as is our goal, we're going to, you know, use that to canvas to have town halls to really put, you know, then I'd, I'd be a lot more open to hearing that. Um, but, you know, in terms of how it's been uh, articulated by, um, you know, it's it's undeniably largest proponent. It sounds more like the goal here is let's do force the vote and prove that all these progressive Democrats are fucking scumbags. Like they always said they were. I'm right. Donate to my Patreon. Like that's that's what this feels like a lot more. And, you know, if if that's the goal of the movement, you know, I mean, if that's the goal of the tactic here, uh, that it's not movement building, it's proving that you were right about AOC. I. I, I can't see that as a productive force, even though I think holding politicians accountable should be absolutely central to organizing work. Totally agree. Yeah, I think that, you know, on 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 the one hand, you know, it's important to um, recognize that AOC is not Nancy Pelosi. Like, that's, mm-hmm. that's just obvious. And, and like having, like, trying to like, Having to explain why that is, is like, it just strikes me as ridiculous. Like it's, it's, it's very obvious that AOC is not the same, equals the same as Nancy Pelosi. On the other hand, I have no, I don't, I don't have any uh, need for, to understand what is in AOC's heart, you know, really like it's, it's not about that. Like politicians shouldn't, it's, that's not how they work. And that's not how, um, that's not how we should relate to them, you know? The only one who is pure is Bernie, but, (laughs) but, uh, um, but it's just not how we should relate to them in in any way. Like we should just create the conditions um, in which we force them to, to to do the things we want. I mean, that's just how any reform has ever happened in, in the past. Um, And it strikes me as, you know, the, 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 the strategic kind of impetus to, make AOC the focus of the obstacle to Medicare for all just strikes me as, as just completely counterproductive. I mean, I'm, and I'm not saying this to defend AOC as some like, you know, that, cause I don't know what's really in her heart. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter to me that much. Um, but I can recognize that her political effect, her political trajectory so far, which by the way is very short, like it's, you know, she's only been, in Congress for, for, for two years. Um, it just, it, it is, it does feel to me like fundamentally different from Nancy Pelosi's political trajectory, which we know because she's been in politics from since the 1980s. Um, and, and she's been the, the democratic 
uh, house leader since the mid 2000s. So we we know her. We we already there's no need to expose her anymore any any and any more than than already is kind of obvious to to everyone who deals with her. Um so yeah, I mean I just I just think that that that's kind of one one of one of the problems with this whole the tenor of this whole conversation where it's about the focus has been on kind of like exposing AOC as some sort of secret sellout or some sort of Trojan horse. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know that that's, that that's in any way useful or, or, or not. Like it's not, it, it's not important to me. It's not, uh, that's, it, yeah. it just doesn't matter to me. Like it's, it, you know, the, the, the real thing is what, what structural things can we change mm-hmm. so that the power uh, so that the, the balance of power, so to speak, shifts in our direction. And that's yeah, just, right. that's, that's, and then politicians will react accordingly, even if they're the most horrible people you've ever, you, you could ever deal with. Like, I mean, yeah. horrible people voted for civil rights, horrible people voted for yeah. Medicare, like awful, awful politicians who are just disgusting human beings uh, voted for those very important reforms. It didn't matter what was in their hearts. What yeah. mattered was the balance of power that they were responding to. Um, and and that's why like always understanding the structural reasons or the structural power forces that we have um, at, on our side or not, like you say, like, you know, basically a sixth of the American economy versus one Congresswoman from, from the Bronx. I mean, it just strikes me as the balance of power very, very much skewed <laughs> in one direction. So like, we just have to, we have to keep the focus on that. And it's like, just the, the focus of what's inside someone's heart is to me largely irrelevant, except for Bernie, because his <laughs> heart is pure. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the whole people people talk about moving politicians left, and I think that um, you know the idea there isn't that you change them as people; uh, it's that you change the political currents that they're operating in, uh, and that that's what we need to do. Um, I, I yeah. think that you know, that, that has to be central to our understanding of political change. And, you know, unfortunately, our enemy is uh, capital. Um, our enemy is um, the massive healthcare industry. It's all of the moneyed interests that curry favor with politicians in ways. I, I heard the segment about, you know, Janet Yellen earlier that, you know, it's still difficult to get people on the same page about that sometimes that, you know, those, those are our enemies. That's what we have to come up against. And, you know, the left by definition will never have the same financial resources (laughs) as the right will. Um, And so, you know, the source of our power is people, it's getting bodies out into the streets. It's getting, you know, people to occupy offices. It's getting people to occupy, you know, in some cases, Um, There have been like major actions with people occupying different pharmaceutical companies, property, different, um, you know, insurance companies, you know, different people have done different things in different contexts for different reasons. Uh, But that's where our power comes from. And that's what we have to focus on building. And that's the only thing uh, that's really going to reliably convert people because when, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, when the vast amount of pressure that capital is able to marshal on its own behalf comes bearing down on these people, capital will always be more convincing unless we have a really formidable ground effort uh, and that that's what we need to do. 
You know, and one final thing that I wanted to bring up um, is the role of um, progressive media in in helping to, uh, you know, accomplish these policy goals, helping to maybe even uh, get people to organize, inform people, of course. Um, so I think missing from the debates so far has been the discussion and more importantly, the realization that while um, left media is certainly growing and it's an important institution to focus on, it's certainly not powerful enough to uh, supersede, override uh, the spin that we get from corporate media. I mean, we just experienced that during the Democratic primaries. Uh, We've been experiencing it for a long time. And so what I thought was really fascinating um, about some of the discussion that took place during the Force the Vote town hall was how often left media and, more importantly, um, organizations like the DSA were being torn apart and, um, in in the case of Jimmy Dore, uh, absolutely smeared. Um, And then everyone else just kind of stood by and allowed it to happen. Um, And that is incredibly counterproductive as we try to grow these institutions and make them powerful enough um, to spread the word, to help uh, to let people know what's going on. I'm going to give you a quick snippet of of what that looked like during the Force the Vote town hall. Um, And then I'll, I'll share a few more thoughts. Let's take a look. So why is it that people who are considered progressive leaders mischaracterize this, which is another form of lying, and then when pointed out that that's incorrect, they never correct it? Well, why the fuck is that? They just happen to take $20 million from Clinton donors, $4 million from Republicans, and $2 million from their own audience, which they then throw away, and we're supposed to pretend that they're not fucking on the take? Yes, they fucking are, and those are the people who are kneecapping this moment. And that's why this is a clarifying moment. All right. So um, I specifically chose that clip because he's talking about TYT. I work at TYT um, and I find it fascinating uh, that people like Katie Halper signed on to that, nodding her head, agreeing. She never has any problems appearing on TYT, never had any issues with so-called corporate influence in our programming. I'm the EP of the main show. Uh, we attack Nancy Pelosi on a regular basis. I don't, no one speaks to me about what I get to put in the show. No one tells me what I can and can't talk about. TYT is a company with dozens of employees. We're not a small group of YouTubers, um, who have no overhead and can just, uh, operate based on Patreon, uh, donations. So yeah, TYT took, a um, an invest, a round of investing. I wish we didn't have to do that, but had we not? TYT wouldn't be around. And the whole point of that company is to build progressive talent, which, by the way, Jimmy Dore got to take advantage of and amplify voices who want to fight for the same thing. Right. Um, Brianna Joy Gray sitting there listening to that smear and accepting it. Fascinating because when she was national press secretary for Bernie Sanders, uh, she hit me up asking if I'd be willing to go on CNN to talk about my support for Bernie Sanders for free, by the way. It didn't get paid for that. Uh, so if I'm such a corporate shill, why did she ask me to defend Bernie Sanders in these segments for CNN? Um, did she not 
think I was a corporate shill back then, but now all of a sudden miraculously thinks I am. One other thing is uh, we took that round of investing in 2016. Jimmy Dore uh, left TYT in 2019. Does that mean that he's uh, now been compromised in some way because of that money uh, that helped to uh, fund our uh, engineers, our app, our website, the various shows that we have on that network, the dozens of graphics people and editors that we have on board? I mean, please. So that kind of smear is beyond counterproductive because aside from being insulting toward TYT, um, you saw the same kind of accusation against anyone who just had legitimate questions about this method and this strategy. So all this has done is disempower progressive news outlets that have been working hard to get the word out about these policy proposals. It has fractured the left between those who allegedly care about Medicare for all more than others, which of course is not even remotely true. So what's really going on here? What are they trying to do? All they've done so far is divide the effort to get these policies accomplished. Going after the DSA is... One of the more interesting outcomes of all of this, in my opinion. Um, so I find this to be counterproductive. I, I don't think that this is actually going to lead to any positive change, um, but I might be wrong. And I'm, I want to open this up to both of you guys, because if you disagree with me, totally fine. I'm not going to be offended by that. Uh, but I am calling this what it is. I think this is a pathetic, ridiculous and incredibly embarrassing thing that's happening right now. No one needs no, to no, say anything. No, no, I mean, it's I, okay. I, don't know, I, I, I don't spoke know my piece. Like, I spoke it, my it piece. Was, it was Natalie's turn. Because everyone, I mean, everyone's I, no, like I, mealy I I mean, mouth, think... like, you know, very, trying to be very careful. But let's call it what it is. Brianna Joy Gray knows me. She knows me. So you think I'm a corporate shill? I'd love her to address that. I would love her to address the bad faith smears that are taking place right now. Do it. No, Do it. I mean, it, it is. No, that I mean, that's been I mean, that's been the 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 most disheartening thing about all of this. I mean, like, it's like, I mean, we, you know, we make the joke, like if, if, if this would be like an FBI operation, it would be like perfectly executed, you know, to, to, to divide the left. I mean, this is something that is just, it's just a classic thing that's happened a million times is like where, um, you know, because there is some sort of disagreement on some very narrow tactical thing, the, the, um, the morals of it um, become like, it becomes like the 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 issue, like whether you if you disagree uh, on on some incredibly narrow tactical thing, then um, you're impure, immoral, or whatever. Um, and that's something you've that's revealed yourself. Yeah, you've revealed yourself to be like the inner demon that you are, or whatever. Um, and it's just and it's ridiculous. Like it's 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 absolutely ridiculous. Like you have to have a little bit of more uh, uh, ability to discern this kind of thing. You know, like you have to have a little bit more. You like I disagree with like with Jenk on a million things. Like I mean, I've you know, I mean, I've been on TYT a million times. I mean, it's not. I don't think that. I don't now think that like it's because of some evil force behind him. I just think me and Jenk disagree on things. It's fine. Um, you know, like that just that just happens. But there has to be some some um identification of who the real kind of enemies are and like tyt is very clearly not the real enemy of the left by any stretch of the imagination like it's just it's just and it's one of those things like okay when you and you have to like explain it and it's like well you just kind of know it when you see it i don't know like you you kind of just know i I don't know like 
MSNBC is an enemy of the left. I know that. I know that in my bones. Right. Like, do I have to like write a, a freaking dissertation about to explain why? No, I just know it. Everyone knows it. Um, like TYT you is just it not based on how they frame the discussion. And this isn't just about TYT. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because we're working on building institutions, right? We're working on um, finding a way to overcome the spin that we hear in corporate media all the time. Uh, and they help to destroy our efforts. And what we're seeing right now are these bad faith attacks, not just on TYT. We're part of it, right? We're definitely being targeted, but also against Sam Cedar, against other wonderful folks out there who we might disagree with time to time on various strategies. But again, we're in it together trying to accomplish the same things. So I'm very curious, what are we accomplishing here right now when we're tearing our allies apart like this? Um, Using rhetoric that does not help in any way in building a broad coalition to fight for Medicare for all. Like, what, what, what are we doing with this ridiculous counterproductive nonsense that's going on? And the thing that has infuriated me the most, and I'm saying it, it, it has infuriated me, is that people who know us, people who know our intentions, people who have worked closely with us in the past are sitting there and listening to that lunatic and allowing and enabling that lunatic to make all sorts of ridiculous smears against good people who have been working hard, right? I have a huge problem with that. And they keep talking about it as if like, oh, Jimmy Dore's mean, so I don't want Medicare for all. No, no, no. I can be mean too. This isn't about Jimmy Dore being mean, okay? He could be as mean as he wants to me. What this is about, though, is the people surrounding him enabling him when he puts out ridiculous conspiracy theories, like calling me someone who's being funded by NATO because I interviewed Madeleine Albright once. So a direct question to both Katie Halper and Brianna uh, Joy Gray. Do you guys think that I'm paid by NATO? And if you don't, why don't you say something? Do you think that uh, Sam Cedar is just a corporate shill? And if you don't think he is, then why don't you say so? I just think that this yeah. effort has been so destructive, so toxic, yeah. and so disgusting. And don't tell me not to focus on Jimmy Dore when they've decided to put Jimmy Dore front and center in this entire thing. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean... I really I hope that the people that this has galvanized so much do continue to organize. I mean, I've said that so many times. Like, you know, as, as disappointing and frightening and bizarre as I think that the response has been from a lot of his super fans and from, you know, him in particular and some of his allies. Uh, I do think, you know, there are so many people who are, um, you know, into this in good faith, uh, who, you know, really are. And obviously, like, there are incredibly morally justifiable reasons to be as angry at the state of healthcare system and about, you know, the political obstacles that we have. And so, you know, I really, I hope that the people who are relatively new to politics, who got into it through his show, are able to, you know, find um, sustainable base building avenues. Um, you know, I, I find it dismaying that his rhetoric and strategy is so antithetical to that and what that might look like. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's it's very, it's it's dismaying. I don't I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, no, th this, this whole episode has been, you know, just, I mean, l ludicrous on, on so many levels. And, um, you know, it's, it's, again, I, 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 I try to always like step back and, and think of like the, 
the the sort of what's going on underneath all of this and it's just it, it the the that's where i sort of fall into a kind of pit of of despair because it just really shows that the state of the left in america is is just in a, in, a, in a incredibly poor uh, place. I mean, it was like I said, it was kind of papered over by the by the Bernie campaign. Um, a lot of that, a lot of those issues were kind of put on the back burner, and and um, and and it was just held together. This kind of this kind of very dysfunctional coalition was held together uh, by the Bernie campaign. But but this has just like unleashed all of it. And like, yeah, I mean, like what Jimmy Dore is doing is absolutely like awful like it's just it's awful like and and like it's just i can't i can't think of anything like more destructive right now to building a left that is you know solidaristic that you know kind of can can work together can coordinate to um actually get meaningful gains in in places than having someone like him do what he's doing right now (laughs) i mean it's just it Anyone, anyone who thinks that that, that is not is that is this is not like a just absolutely destructive uh, force. Uh, I, I just don't. Un- I really don't understand it. I, I I can't understand how. Like I understand like if you're just like some, you know, some like some person kind of scrolling through YouTube and 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 you come across like I understand like you becoming a fan, but like I just don't understand how it can happen that that people who are like pundits who are you know are are counting any of this. Like it's just. I, I, it's, it's, it's very obvious what's going on to me. Like if, like I said, if, if this were, I don't think it's an FBI operation. Um, I don't believe that Jimmy Dore is an FBI agent, but if it were, it'd be executed to perfection, you know, like to, to, to just throw like a a giant hand grenade in the middle of a very weak, uh, uh, a very weak left in this country. And that's just what, that, that's what's going, that's what's happening right now. And it's absolutely dismaying, you know? Well, Natalie, um, thank you for the work that you do and for bringing some um, sanity and clarity uh, into this discussion. Uh, really enjoyed the discussion that you had with Ben Burgess on his show recently. Everyone check that out. Um, Give Them an Argument is the name of his show. Um, and I know we went a little long today, so I appreciate your patience and taking the time to speak with us today. Okay, well, thank you guys so much for having me. And, uh, you know, let's, let's hope for uh, clearer skies soon. <laughs> Definitely. All right. Thanks, Natalie. Um, so we have gone long, um, but yeah. Kale, do you want to maybe, if if we have it, uh, no pressure if we don't, um, any comment or super chat question you want to bring up? Yeah. So we have gotten, um, hey, everyone. Uh, hey, we've gotten a number of super chats throughout the show. Um, a lot of people just kind of uh, offering like support of what we're saying or, or very nice thoughts. Um of Anna, of Nando, of Natalie, um, and uh, I'm not trying to blanket over all of them, but there were quite a few of them. Some of them, you know, also uh, saying, you know, that we should be leveraging the speakership, that we should be forcing the vote. There's, I agree with that. Yeah. I agree with that. But I I also think, okay, leveraging for which concessions, like what can we actually accomplish rather than just like a theatrical moment that will get ignored by the media. And more importantly... Yeah, yeah go, go ahead. ahead. No, sorry, sorry. No, sorry, go ahead. No, I know what you're going to say, and I agree with you on what you're about to say. So definitely, oh, um, you know, know, bring this up. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, I just think, I think we shouldn't get any concessions. I think, I think if, like, if I were dictator of, of, of the squad, I would just, I, and if they had the votes, um, I would probably just, I would probably would just take the, the Nancy Pelosi down. I mean, I'm, t- I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm going to outflank Jimmy Dore. Uh, 
<laughs> you know, I, I honestly think even if even if she does get replaced by Hakeem Jeffries, who's an absolute ghoul, I, I still think that that would be a political earthquake, unlike we've seen in this country in, in, in a while. Um, I mean, it at least demonstrates level. the leverage they have. Right. And, and yeah. it could um, lead to at least a little bit of fear among corporate Democrats. Um, so I agree with you on that. Right. And I hate I, Pelosi, so I'd love to see her out of that role. Well, so that's honestly, I think it's probably, I mean, I think that the squad and others, and there actually is a question that I want to get to in a second, but I think the squad and others should, uh, they should probably not vote for Pelosi, that they should withhold their vote. Um, I think when we have opportunities to actually distinguish democratic socialists from the Democrats, the, the democratic mm-hmm. establishment, we should take those opportunities. Um I think not voting for Pelosi is a good way to say to, you know, to the extent that people are paying attention, uh, you know, we are not the same thing as the Democratic Party. We are using the Democratic Party because it's a structural problem with our electoral system, but that we have fundamental uh, differences and disagreements with the leadership of the Democratic Party. The Democrats that most people in this country genuinely really hate because of NAFTA, because of these overpromises and never delivering, because it's the they used to be the party of working people and of labor and are no longer. And so it's this like deep disappointment uh, in, in a party that once used to represent your interests. And so we have to say like, yeah, no, we're not associated with uh, that Democratic Party. Like we have to use the ballot line because there's a structural problem where third parties aren't viable in this country. Like, and that might not be the case always. And there are, I think, you know, there's some plausible suggestions about how to, you know, kind of, you know, within the system, within the the framework that exists that we all have to unfortunately organize within that, um, for instance, the idea of a party surrogate that uh, Dustin Guastella and Jared Abbott have proposed and Jacobin, I think is really convincing. Um, but you know, there, there are, there are these alternatives, um, in some sense, but at the same time, like we are, we are stuck in this party and we have to at the same time say that we're not the same as this party. Uh, and so I think not voting, it was a huge part of Bernie's appeal. Like, let's be real about that. Like, like when every every single time a lib said like, but he's not a real Democrat, like, you know, like his power just kind of grew. Yeah. <laughs> more and more you know i think that that is a i think that is a um i think that i think that is a lesson that the squad should take uh from bernie that that's why he caucused as an independent like he like he called himself an independent but caucused with democrats kind of thing uh for years and that's that's one of the reasons why i think he knew that he could not he could not tie himself to um to the leadership of that party um on some fundamental level uh for for his credibility to remain um, intact the way it has, you know, and, and and that is a lesson that should be learned by them for sure. Right. Well, let me, I was going to go somewhere else, but let me get to an actual question because we are going long um, that one of our viewers had asked us, uh, uh, there's a lot of common ground between uh, the Jimmies and the Cornell West of the world, people who support force the vote and Anna and AOC, those who are against force the vote. Um, how do we convince people to get past hostile arguments over force the vote? Um, um, take Jimmy out of the conversation, maybe, um, because I have no problem uh, talking about strategy, debating strategy. Uh, that was never the issue. Uh, but I do have a problem with 
you know, as soon as you ask a question or maybe have a slight disagreement, if one side automatically jumps to you're revealing yourself, uh, you're not, uh, you know, real about your progressivism, you know, you're a corporate shill, you're paid by NATO, like all of that stuff is destructive. And so it completely throws out anything that we uh, might allegedly agree on policy-wise. And I only say allegedly because I don't know what motivates Jimmy Dore. I think any reasonable person could understand that going after your allies in um, the fight for Medicare for All is pretty, pretty counterproductive. Disempowering people who have been trying to fight for this, uh, pretty counterproductive. Uh, so I think that's that has been a huge, that's why you can't just take him out of these strategy discussions because he's the one who threw a, a giant bomb in, and, and all these ridiculous allegations against people. Um, he's the one who threw it into these debates. Yeah. Right. And there's, um, I'm, it's, it sucks because I'm thinking of a quote from someone else, but it's in a book by Senator William Fulbright, who is a, a very important part of uh, the uh, the Senate uh, push against uh, the Vietnam War back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, but he's quoting someone else, so I forget who he's quoting. But it's basically like, uh, you know, there are, there's no historic examples of convincing someone by telling them they're wrong. Like, by just like, just repeatedly just like kind of hitting you over the head. And like, that's part of the problem with both like, uh, like for electeds, like reaching out to AOC or to other people in Congress, or people who are not elected, people who are just on Twitter, people who are on the left in some way, you know, through, again, whether in an actual kind of like they organize on the left or they just kind of feel like they're on the left because it's cool to be on the left and they read the right things. Um, but whatever that whatever that is, like the convincing other people, it's um, like the use of a hashtag is is like so telling because like there are no... Again, there are no examples of hashtag campaigns like leading to material redistribution. Like there are no examples of like these petitions leading to. I mean, again, I think I said this a couple weeks ago, but like the Obama era was full of these petitions, petitions of like we need to, we need this politician to do the right thing and please do this thing. Um, you know, I mean, I think like a good starting point for like actually trying to find some like commonality is like. The fact, you know, it, we need to be having these debates in organized settings, right? And, like, it's impossible to do this over Twitter. Like, I, I think it's structurally impossible to have this as, a, as like, a, a positive, uh, like, something that, like, you just you can't debate strategy on all the nuances of strategy over Twitter. And then all it comes down to is, like, whether it's the politician or whether it's particular media figures, like, do you believe the right things? Are you on the right team? And so, you know, strate strategic questions, strategic discussions and debates should be over, like, what are we doing next? Not like, does the person believe the right thing? It's like, how do we actually move forward? What action are we deciding to take? And there should be, in fact, a democratic process where, you know, 51% says one thing and 49% says the, says the other thing. And that everyone together, maybe not literally every single person, but almost everyone says, all right, those people won, these people lost, we're going to move forward, we're going to, you know, and we're going to hold together as a political block, as a coherent block, people that disagree can can move on. But like, the left, 
right now is so fractured in the way that Nando was saying a moment ago. And we don't have the institutions to actually, like, incubate proper democratic and healthy debate and discussion. And yeah. so I don't know. I don't know if there's a good way to get through this. I actually don't know, like, person to person, if there is a way to reconcile these differences in a way that is genuinely progressive and like and, and moving us in the right direction. So I think we we should try to do our best to, you know, say like, you know, these people who disagree with us on a strategic question, uh, you know, morally are still more or less on the same side as me. That uh, that I think the people I think the vast majority of people who uh, want hashtag force the vote uh, agree with my moral worldview over like, you know, what the problem is with healthcare in America and over issues of like, you know, private healthcare, private pharmaceutical companies are like one of the worst evil fucking things that's ever happened in world history. And, and I think we can all agree on that. And then we would have to have some way of hashing out the, you know, what do we do about it? And in light of having an actual forum, I think, you know, we try our best to look back at the history and see like, okay, what, what did our predecessors do in these situations? Where did they succeed? How did they succeed? Was it, you know, trying to convince someone or yelling at someone, shaming someone, you know, in some non-digital way, like tweeting at someone, you know, signaling them to do the right thing? Or was it through some other means of actually building institutional power, of building collective power? Uh, and how did they do that? And so, that's what we're trying to do. I Jacobin is try to look at that history and we certainly haven't done it enough. Um, hopefully we'll do more of that in the new year, but, uh, I don't know. It just, it's sorry guys. It sucks to be on the left. We lose most of the time. Like, and we have to start from a really bad, like we have to start at the place of losing and try to figure out how to build out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it's again, uh, I don't know. I just, I mean, when you look at, uh, I mean, it, it's it just becomes repetitive and it becomes old hat and it becomes boring in a way, but it really comes down to uh, labor power, and we just don't have that in the United States. I mean, the fact that the fact that, for example, Prop Twenty Two was able to sail by, sail through in California, um, just speaks to like just how atomized and divided any sort of left power is. Um, and, and then you look at, for example, like, you know, uh, the coup in Bolivia and, and how the Bolivian people were able to uh, stand together and, um, and fight for democracy through very strong, powerful uh, labor unions. And that's, that it shows you right there, like where, what the, where the difference is, you know, and it's, um, and it's obviously like the, the U S ruling class has been um, fighting a class war against labor for decades that it has been winning by like mercy rule, you know, like 10 to zero um, and rebuilding that is, is the only way forward. And, and the only way forward to do that is through a process of, building solidarity of building a, um, a, a, a commitment to um, standing together in a way that, 
you know, recognizes differences, recognizes um, that there's going to be disagreements, recognizes that there's going to be bad people, quote unquote, in, in your coalition. Um, the, you know, people that you, you don't necessarily want to be friends with. You don't necessarily want to, you know, that don't necessarily have the purest uh, heart you've ever you've ever seen. But at the end of the day, you have to um, you have to sort of try to get, be able to get past that. And that's like what the tenor of this conversation. And it's not about like tone policing, but it just it's a symptom of of the lack of that on yep. what we call the, the American left. I mean, it's just, you know, the fact that it's that it's become about that, like that it's become about, you know, what shadowy kind of thing an experience is being funded by. Um like come on like it's just, you know this is it's like dumb. it's um, all so incredibly dumb uh we need to build broad coalitions you know oftentimes michael uh brooks would talk about this in the context of uh the left being a little more tolerant of maybe people who don't use the rhetoric that we like right maybe people like uh joe rogan who said that he was supportive of medicare for all and, and would like to vote for Bernie Sanders, the, the negative reaction toward that, of course, from corporate Democrats, but even people who are, you know, great on the left, yeah. uh, people on the left, like they, they signed on to that. And that was frustrating because at the end of the day, what really matters is not like what someone's characteristic or characteristic flaws are, but more importantly, whether or not they're in it for the same fight, for the same policies. Um, and now I think, unfortunately, we have to have that same discussion um, you know, regarding people who have now been smeared unfairly as individuals who don't actually want Medicare for all because they disagree with this one procedural tactic. Um, we're going to have disagreements, guys. And that doesn't automatically mean that one group is bad, one group is good. I do think in the case of Jimmy Dore, we should um, focus a little bit on what his intentions are, especially because during that town hall, he talked about how he personally wants to primary pokan in in chicago um so is this really about uh promoting the third party effort that they're doing or is this really about getting progressives um to uh pressure corporate democrats to to pass medicare for all like we do need to look into intentions as well but overall if we have slight disagreements if we have uh, a, a different way of framing arguments if we have different ways of communicating our arguments i don't think that's that big of a deal what we need to do is keep our eye on the ball and the eye on the ball means pushing for medicare for all appealing to people who want to join us in that fight and not being too judgy about uh one another and that's that is not what the force the vote people are doing right now if anything they're fracturing the left in ways that are counterproductive and i've explained that in great detail on the show um but anyway, uh, I think we should probably wrap up. We went super long today, but um, makes sense since we didn't have a show last week. Uh, so I guess we've had all of this pent up and we were ready to go. We got an extra uh, 20 minutes. Know. We got an yeah, extra 20 minutes. I want, I I want to add one last thing, though. Just one last sure. kind of substantial or substantive, maybe not substantive. Well, I don't know. You be the judge. A substantive point, which is that uh, part of our challenge, too, is that the things that hold the left together right now, for the most part, are moral commitments. And that's not to say that those moral commitments are wrong. Like, they, they are correct. that we The left has to have a moral case for why uh, living in a class society where a small number of people are exploiting and oppressing the vast majority of the rest of the population. Like, there is a moral argument that there is a horrifically 
unequal distribution of both resources and income. Like, and we can say like, it's deeply unfair and that's moral, right? But the thing is that like, if all we have is a moral argument and all, all that we have that kind of, like that keeps the left together as a coherent thing to the extent that it is coherent, if it, if it's, if all we have is moral and morals, then it's so easy to get fractured over these kinds of things where, you know, we have slightly different understandings of why someone does what they do or why, you know, uh, what are, what are our commitments? What, how, how do we actually personally, uh, relate to or commit ourselves to these things? And historically the way the left has associated and, and related to one another is through material relations by saying we as working people, because we're in the same workplace together with the same boss, have the same class interests against that boss. Or we as working people broadly throughout society, I as a worker in one workplace and you as a worker in another workplace, have a similar material interest in advancing you know, a political agenda, uh, whether it's in the particular workplaces or in society. I don't know what's going on above me. But um, that, and again, the thing is like that exists through unions, that exists through uh, workers, associations and organizations, institutions and labor parties. And we don't have much of that. And to the extent that we have that, there's very few people who are in unions in this country. There are very few people that have a democratic union. So like, these are the challenges. This is, I think, this is the starting point is to figure out not only how do we bring more people to our side politically and morally, but how do we actually build a left that is, uh, again, not just morally, but materially linked in its interests. And again, don't have a great answer because it's really tough because like the left in this country for 40, 50 years has been a moral left. And we need to, this is, again, if we're going anywhere, uh, any of our greatest aspirations for a better democratic egalitarian society, it has to start here. It has to start with like, how do we actually rebuild the strength of, of the left and of labor, of working people, of ordinary people having power in their, in their lives. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a great point. No other way to do it. No, there are no choices. Hashtag activism piece in, in, uh, that came out a few months ago. We actually interviewed her about it. That's also a good, good, good refresher. Yeah, definitely, definitely. All, All right, right, folks. Thank um, you both. Thank you, Kale. Peace out. Love you. All Love right, you, and, and thank Love you Kale. to everyone. I love Kale. I know, I know. Every like every Saturday after we wrap the show, I go to Christian, and I'm just like, ah, Kale's the best. <laughs> so, um, shout out to Kale. We all love him, and. Um, Shout out to Jacobin for, um, you know, doing these shows. Uh, they have fantastic video content on YouTube. So uh, please subscribe if you haven't already. And please yeah. uh, become a subscriber to Jacobin's magazine, um, which is just incredibly important um, content. And uh, any final words, Nando, before we go? Well, no, there's another Jacobin show the, uh, every week um, that you guys should check out. Not not just weekends, you know, Ariel Thornburg, who was your guest host when you were out with you know um for this show she's she's there jen pan uh, paul prescott check it out very good stuff um they're, they're the so smarty good. pants we're the fire we're the fire breathing dragons and they're the they're the smarty <laughs> pants <laughs> yes um all right well thank you everyone for watching um we love you guys we appreciate you and we'll see you next week with another episode of weekends all righty